Digital Drift, episode 29, recorded Sunday the 10th of August 2014, The Lego Movie. Good morning, apartment. Ready to start the day. Jumping jacks, hit them. One, two, three. I am so pumped up! Yes! Overpriced coffee. That's $37. Awesome! Everything is awesome. Oh my gosh, I love this song! Come with me if you want to not die. What is happening? You're the special. And the prophecy states that you're the most important person in the universe. That's you, right? Uh, yes. That's me. Relax, everybody. I'm here. Batman? Awesome! Welcome to this super special, awesome episode of Digital Drift. It's the start of my two-part, 400th podcast episode celebration, culminating in next week's The Iron Giant review. And secondly, it's the first episode which guest stars our daughter, Lyra, now aged five years and 11 and a half months. Say hello, Lyra. Hi. Also joining us are Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Hello. Glenn Watts from the Digital Drift community. Hi there. And Ian Hopwood, also of the Digital Drift community. Howdy. This one came out of nowhere, to the point where I only decided I absolutely had to see it a few days before I did. For such a big event movie, that's unusual. It blindsided us, the production process took several years, and Warner Brothers weren't intent on over-marketing it to the same extent as, say, Man of Steel. Now, the video games of Lego Star Wars, Lego Indiana Jones, Lego Batman, Lego Pirates of the Caribbean, Lego Harry Potter, and Lego Lord of the Rings have since day one, established a certain tone. The characters didn't talk. (laughs) The characters didn't talk, instead miming out moments from them. (laughs) I can't do it! Miming out moments from the movies with visual gags, disco routines, and plenty of pratfalls for the international audiences. (laughs) Lord of the Rings gave us an unsettling combo of deadly serious sample dialogue from the movies mashed into the pratfalls and getting beamed upside the head. Lego Batman 2 and Marvel superheroes introduced scripted narratives which weren't at all bad, indicating a genuine progression. So we could be forgiven for thinking that this movie would be something a bit like that. But nobody was anticipating a picture as divorced from the humour and style of the Lego video games as the Pixar films are from their quick buck tie-ins. Now, on release, it garnered a 96% freshness rating with eight sourpusses crying foul and declaring it a shallow marketing ploy for the tie-in kits, while the other 189 critics marveled at its earnestness, depth, and actively encouraging their audience to repurpose their existing bricks and revel in the sheer joy of the -the off-the-map creating that the world's number one toy is built upon. Now, those eight sourpusses are Rhett Bartlett, Ed Whitfield, Carl Smith, Perry Seibert, Wesley Morris, David Newsayer, Daniel M. Kimmel, and Michelle Alexandria. And if you ever meet them, be kind. They need a hug and a friend and someone to believe in them. I loved the Lego movie the first time we saw it together. I came out euphoric and slavering for plastic bricks and the opportunity to build with friends and family. Watching it on Blu-ray, I actually like it even more, with this sixth time being the best one yet. 
Now, what we found today whilst journeying through with a finger hovering over the pause button was that this film is absolutely crammed with detail you weren't even aware of on a conscious level while watching it in theatres. People often compliment Stanley Kubrick and his ilk for directing with every frame filled with meaning and intent. This movie has that. In fact, while it may not be this film's equal for everyone, I would posit that the Lego movie has a commensurate level of both detail and sheer joy of creativity of the great and venerated Toy Story. It is a comedy nexus point, already responsible for a version of Batman that several generations are never going to forget and may prove immensely influential in the future. It references, satirizes, and embraces My Little Pony Friendship is Magic and Adventure Time, with links to community, arrested development, and parks and recreation, not to mention the entire superhero mashup genre. It also takes the core story of The Matrix... That's the first movie, even beyond the Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, and remakes, subverts, and evolves it to the point where The Matrix never needs to be remade because it already happened, and it was a U-certificate movie literally suitable for all who either are or are capable of remembering what it feels like to be a child. Now, you listeners at home may have loved this movie or liked it a whole lot, but not been absolutely sure as to why. And we're hoping this podcast both illuminates some of the possibilities for you and maybe even gives you more to love about it. Now, if you got very little out of this movie and are still somehow listening after this initial gush, then stick around for some things you definitely missed. So we'll start with the prologue. So... What initially struck you about this movie while watching it, up to the point where Emmett wakes up? I guess the first thing that struck me is the stop-motion aesthetic, which mm. is I've not seen done in CG in a movie like this before. So I will say one of the things that immediately caught me is just how real it all felt. I mean, I've been playing with Lego since as long as I can remember. My brother has too. I mean, I've got drums full of it, and I'm looking at these the sets they've built and the characters, I'm like, that could be a real brick in my mm. brain. I'm having to remind myself that I know it's CGI, although listening to the commentary, some of it, they did film small parts of it with real Lego, but mm. they, it really did strike me immediately, like, okay, I know this isn't, but it is. It's kind of got that uncanny valley feel in a toy yeah, it's not smooth and shiny and perfect like the scenes in the video games tend to be. Yeah. yeah they've intentionally tried to make, sort of, have worked very hard to create a sort of cheapness to the, like they could make this Lego stuff look perfectly like reality if they wanted to, but they've made some of the lighting uneven, they've made lots of little imperfections and blemishes along the way just to make it feel like as much as possible. Like, this is someone's incredibly high production value stop motion film. Yeah. And it really feels like, down to the particle effects, which is, which still kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, using existing Lego elements for absolutely everything. They didn't make anything up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be so easy to, to create just an ocean of kind of water and have bricks and just have like brick ships floating around in it. Cause that's, cause that's much simpler and, clearer and easier to do but instead they will make a smoke cloud or an explosion or anything else out of basically a stop motion progression of lego bricks of various colors and it looks amazing and down to the fact that they've got thumbprints on some of the characters and uh the some of their hats and 
outfits have got little scratches and nicks on them where they would have if you'd been pulling heads off and switching them out with others. And it all, as you say, looks like they've made it with real Lego. They're very careful with their light sources and cameras. They pull things into um, sharp focus and have other things blurred in the background to make it feel like there are actual cameras there, where it's it's effectively CG, so they don't have to do that. Everything could be in sharp focus. But because they pull that trick, it makes you feel like you're actually watching uh, like tiny, like actual scale Lego up extremely close. And because they pay attention to where the light sources are coming from, where the shines are coming uh, from, and you get reflections as well in the shinier surfaces, it feels like you're actually there. In, in the same way as um, to to do the Starship Enterprise, they um, uh, they they made the panels uneven in uh, the, the new Star Trek film because that that slight imperfection sells the uh, the reality of the world rather than than going for absolute computer perfection. Well, even when you're working with live action, if you make something too perfect, it looks like a set. Yeah. And even like you were saying about some of the character design, um, skipping ahead to a character we haven't met at this point, but with the character design on Benny, I remember the 80s spaceman. Hmm. And every single one of the helmets I had had that chip. It was broken at the jaw, that jaw piece. So that, I mean, it's that level of detail that really stood out. I'm amazed those guys were on sale for like 11 years with this very easily breakable helmet until Lego actually went, we got to do a different one. And they introduced the, guy, the one with the visor. But I think pretty much everyone of our age watching would have just immediately fallen in love with Benny to, to some small extent because of that detail if they ever had a Lego Spaceman. Right from his like very first two-second appearance in the trailer, he was like, yeah. that's it, I'm watching this movie. Yeah. Just on note of Benny, uh, the spaceship, spaceship, spaceship set that they released for it actually has the broken chin piece as part of his helmet. Yeah. For safety reasons, it's not a vintage helmet with the split in it. They've actually fabricated a, a special one which is deliberately split, but so one that won't pinch little children's fingers because that thing, they could be quite spiky, as I recall. Yep. The first thing we actually see on, in this uh, prologue, um, it's it's just plain Lego base plates in blue for the sky, uh, but uh, the Warner Brothers logo is hanging on a little uh, thread and they only do the hanging on a thread thing a couple of times in the film uh, with uh, Ghost Vitruvius uh, being the, the notable one but it it immediately puts you in mind of this is a puppet show this is low budget this is you know someone sort of throwing it together for you as opposed to get ready for the glossiest thing you've ever seen it's almost it, it wears its um, uh, uh, garage roots on its sleeve which but is that, ironic because the kid's playing in a garage that knowing wink to the idea that we know, you know, it's a puppet show. Look, we'll show you the strings. Yeah. It's then you. It, it doesn't become about being able to see where the strings are because once you've acknowledged that, that's that's the beauty of working in in um, uh, anything. Well, basically anything that's not live action. If you acknowledge from the very beginning as a, as a creator of that kind of film, right, we already know what all the tropes are. We already know what all the little backstage tricks that you are going to be trying to be smart and looking out for. If we acknowledge now that we know you know, then we can just get on with the story. Yeah. Kind of the same with the prophecy, actually. When Vitruvius starts spouting it off, it's it's... That there is a, a knowing wink the whole way through of you guys have all heard this prophecy thing done time and again. So let's do this in a way where we know you know you know. One day 
a talented lasso fellow, a special one with face of yellow, will make the peace of resistance found from its hiding refuge underground. And with a noble army at the helm, this master builder will thwart the craggle and save the realm and be the greatest, most interesting, most important person of all times. All this is true because it rhymes. Also, if you if you pause it, there are teeth marks on some of these characters. Vitruvius and Benny specifically are very toothy. Vitruvius uh, is filthy as well. Yeah, well, Vitruvius later on, uh, the, uh, the 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 earlier versions a lot cleaner and uh, and more professional looking with a silver band. Um, but uh, yeah, the Benny specifically, those teeth marks, the man upstairs. Benny was the man upstairs first Lego guy. Ooh. Does that fit with the age? Yeah, uh, it was released in 1977, and let's say Will Ferrell was born in 1967, so at 10 years old. Oh, maybe even if he's playing a little bit old to bite them, but yeah. If he's a little bit younger, (laughs) I bit my Lego at seven. So if he's playing a character three years younger than uh, than he 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 actually is, then you know, seven years old, you get Benny. You thoughtfully while you're making your spaceship, you chew on his helmet. Well, sometimes using your teeth was the only way to get some of those parts apart. That yes, is true. That is very true. Um, looking at the character design for Lord Business as well, um, it, what he reminded me of straight away is the Lord of Darkness in Legend, Tim Curry. Yeah. Big red guy, big red horns. And think about it, they're both named after concepts, darkness and business. And then you've got all darkness, these fantasy tropes. Business. that are, Again, it's we know that you're going to know that this is all referring to this. So let's put that there front and centre. Yeah. The red coffee cups, they never actually showed it, but I'm going to go ahead and bet that the man upstairs drinks almost exclusively out of red coffee cups. And when he gets angry, his coffee spills. Interesting note um, from the commentary is they tried to make the cape look like a red tie and the horns are the knot of the tie. Of course. Actually... uh, this film gets unlocked once you know the twist because watching it through, Sharon and I were just finding moment after moment after moment where we're like, if you put put the whole plot of this through the filter of Finn, it 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 has a meta narrative to it about a relationship between a child and his father, and as in it, by extent, many children with many fathers, which just gives it so much scope. The very first big clue for that comes at the end of this prologue section with the eight and a half years later. Mm-hmm. Yes. I had an interesting theory on that. Um, eight and a half years, you know, if, the, if he is eight and a half years old or approximately, did as a baby he break a Lego set and that's when he started gluing them together? Maybe. Possible. I did think at that point that the... Oh, baby break Lego, baby break Lego! <laughs> Uh, who Vitruvius is at this point in the intro, I think, this is my interpretation, that Finn's father was a bit of a hippie in his younger days. And when his son was born, that's the point at which he went, right, now I have to be responsible, now I have to take control of things, and he basically crushed his inner Vitruvius. And Blinded that's him. when the Lord Business character took control. Yeah, everything about Vitruvius is everything Lord Business would hate. 
he's about freedom and chaos and uh, uh, tie-dyed shirts. Tie-dyed shirts. <laughs> if you look at his design, he's he's wearing a bathrobe and he's wearing Crocs. And, um, he's actually, he's a wonderful kind of subversion of the sage wizard type because he, he's, a, he's kind of crazy and, um, d- incompetent as well. He's a lot closer to the dude than a wizard, really. Yes. <laughs> oh, but you rug, say man. that, wizard just means wise one and the dude is about the wisest individual in the history <laughs> of the earth. I mean, Vitruvius isn't wearing his crazy hippie outfit in the prologue. It's kind of a bit more wizardly. He's yeah. got like a char- a charm hanging around his neck, and yeah. his robes look like proper wizard robes at that point. He's fallen on hard times. Oh, also, uh, when you uh, look in his eyes when he's uh, giving his prophecy, you can see Emmett falling through the portal. And uh, one of the most like fun little stop-motion bits for me, and this obviously relates all the way back to things like the Knights of the Round Table um, Knights thing that was uh, produced for by a fan for um, the Monty Path and the Holy Grail community. And every Lego stop-motion piece that's been done in between, the fire, when there's fire in this... It, they take the, the very specific little fire flame bricks that, that exist in Lego and just kind of twist them around and around and have them sort of raising up and down. And that's the most kind of, um, it reminds me of, of like sort of early 80s, uh, animation and it's kind of like Oliver Postgate stuff. So like 70s as well. Uh, what was the name of the, the Wind in the Willows thing? Cosgrove Hall? That, that level of thing. There's similar feelings in, um, Fantastic Mr. Fox as well. Chorlton and the Wheelies had something that looked a lot like that. And the Moomins. Yeah. The Moomins was one of the creepiest things I ever saw. The minifig that they have in the, the, the very tail end of the intro, it has no hairpiece or hat or face, which kind of seemed to me to be pointing out how interchangeable the hero archetype is. Mm-hmm. And you get this with Emmett every time he wakes up, and I think there's three scenes of the film where he's he's out for some reason and then he wakes up in, and it starts on a shot of just his eyes. And because they're so blank, at that point, he literally could be anybody. Nobody actually refers to Emmett by name at all until the interrogation. So he says hi to lots of people and then he calls them by name, but nobody says his name. They, even when they're talking to them on the uh, video and they just say that guy, they don't even refer to him by name. Like uh, he, he's not special enough to engender an identity. He actually says his name first before anybody else says it. Yeah. One of the things I noticed watching it more recently was the whole get out of bed, you know, have breakfast, have a shower, watch section. It seems like it's steps of the day that Lord Business would do or the man upstairs would be doing. Get out of yeah. breakfast, greet the family, you know, have breakfast with the ones you love, go to work, drink overpriced coffee. <laughs> uh, you know, I was wondering like, where the shave your face came from as well. Yeah. It seems like something he's he's being shown or told to do by his father rather than something he's come up with himself. Yeah. Does he make himself listen to popular music just to fit in? Or is it just a case of listening to the radio and that happens to be what's on? That could be as well. Do you like Everything is Awesome? Yeah. Everything is awesome. Always use a turn signal. Park between the lines. Yes. Drop off dry cleaning before noon. Read the headlines. Don't forget to smile. Always root for the local sports team. Always return a compliment. Hey, you look nice. So do you. Drink overpriced coffee. There you go. That's $37.
Awesome. But Emmett himself, they spent ages trying to decide on his hair, and they've gone for the most generic brown hair imaginable, but there's that little cowlick, that little tuft at the back there, that little sort of standing out, sticking out, that makes him special and unusual, and in fact was a brand new piece for the uh, uh, for the film itself. So Chris Pratt seems to be kind of the new guy who's going to, be, like, anything he's in, you should probably go see. Yeah, he's the new Robert Downey Jr. What's funny about his hairstyle is he has the seam on the actual, on the CGI version, mm. but when they do the live-action scene later, the no seam isn't there because they didn't replicate it, that little seam. That is a commentary on how seamlessly... That, I can't carry that one up. <laughs> <laughs> The scene being there all the time kind of shows you the cracks, shows you... Because it's ever so slightly uneven, and if you look carefully, you can see, like, the curve of his head underneath where his hair parts. Um, so it's... Again, it's it's kind of showing you the, the makeup of the figures themselves. It's much more intimate. When you get that sort of big, wide shot of the city that comes in this section, the first thing that got me there was I'd not seen any LEGO Productions video games and movies on where they did everything. With the Lego pieces. Yeah. Having worked on one of Lego's games a long while ago, we did as much as we could. Yeah. But it was very, very difficult to do everything in Lego, and they actually manage it here. So. Yeah, that impresses me as well. It's the dedication to that conceit of like we are actually going to make everything in Lego, and figuring out they're going to figure out how to do it, and not take the easy way out. But again, by making just we can do CG water. Let's just do CG water. But but no, that they, they decided we're going to figure out how to do a stop motion particle system that sort of dedication just blows my mind this whole the thing that really just strikes me with this intro is just how fast the humor comes in this movie Mm -hmm. i realized about an hour into watching this for the third time that i had been smiling the entire time and my face was tired (laughs) (laughs) it just comes at such a crazy fast pace you are barely finished laughing at the last thing before there have been two or three new things that you could laugh at it it comes at almost an archer type speed yeah like, or just, the Simpsons at their very, very, very best. Yeah, just so fast you cannot even keep up with it. It, it rewards countless viewings that way. Mm. It felt very kind of familiar to me because obviously we've been watching stuff like Adult Swim um, for, for years now, which uh, don't make concessions to populist um, notions of comedy and have been just delivering that. Acrotene Hunger Force always did that as well. Um, so, you know, to see the, the general public embracing it and, and that the combination of various different characters all in one place, which shouldn't normally work, um, but obviously we've been enjoying stuff like Robot Chicken and before that Twisted Toy Fair Theatre for years, suddenly the general public's like, oh, this is a really good idea. Yeah, no, sh- it's a good idea. And I'm just so pleased the rest of the world's beginning to catch up. That's not me being uh, elitist. That's me wishing the rest of the world would embrace this more. So even Nintendo used Robot Chicken this year at their ETH presentation, didn't they? They did, yeah. I think part of that is what we've discussed before about the the idea of the DVD and particularly the Blu-ray, meaning that people make films in a different way because they're making them now for a home audience who are going to watch it over and over again and be willing to pause it to pick up the details mm. that you wouldn't otherwise see, which means that the creators of those films are willing to put in the effort yeah. because they know that the chances are someone is going to see it and pay attention and, and get it and like it. It's not just going to be universally ignored. Imagine watching this film on VHS if they'd made it in 1996 or 97 and how much of that detail and the thumbprints would be lost 
This is a film made for high definition. Um, okay, so some little things you may just have missed. There's an award on uh, uh, Emmett's wall, which is not last, because being last would be something. <laughs> um, he also has two uh, posters, Fast Car and Sports. Just fitting in with uh, people who like absolutely everything. Uh, there, there's also a poster for Macho and the Nerd on the wall, which, as I mentioned in the commentary, is the, is it the Russian name for 21 Jump Street? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by, uh, uh, Lord and Miller, uh, which is also great fun and you guys should check out. Um, there are, his bookshelf is lined with instructions rather than books. Uh, and he's always being happy because the little Lego guys always are. It wasn't until fairly recently that they started releasing Lego figures that looked sad. Or fierce. Or fierce. Yeah. Even the pirates were cheery. Um, can anyone remember any of the posters that are around Bricksburg that are president business propaganda? Anyone remember the slogans? Uh, no. I've got oh. a few. Okay. A lot of them, um, in fact, most of them seem to be things that Finn has overheard his father say at some point or has been told by his father. Directly. Um, you've got, what part of no don't you understand? Because I said so, colour inside the lines. Oh, that's a painful one. Mm. Uh, don't stay up all night. Don't touch my stuff. I've got my eye on you. No playing in the street. No chewing gum. Yeah. It's the the entire town, uh, while it's uh, all happy and ordered, is presided over by all of these rules that are just sort of sat there in, in plain sight um, with this really kind of creepy Big brother vibe. Because I said so. Yeah. Is it more Brave New World? I don't know. I've not read Aldous Huxley, uh, where it's a, a utopia, where everyone's happy, but it's incre- there's the, underneath it, it, there's this strict, rigid order. Possibly. Fit- I don't know. I haven't read it. <laughs> I'm getting a Demolition Man-y vibe from it, yeah? Yeah. It feels like a- that could apply to several... Mm. Which, yeah. I mean, the, there's obvious elements of Orwell in there as well, but, I mean, the uh, there's also when President Business is on the TV in Emmett's uh, apartment, again... Finn's interpretation of what his father has been telling him all this time when he comments that the citizens who follow the instructions will receive a free taco and his love kind of suggests that Finn thinks his father's only going to love him if he does what he's told and follows the rules, which is immensely sad. And then he says that those that don't will be put to sleep. And of course he's assuming. Yes. Sent, sent, <laughs> That's terrifying. Sent to, <laughs> sent, sent to bed, essentially. But, yeah. Oh, how oh, cool. nice. <laughs> um, did, when I first saw the, uh, the trailer for this and Emmett came up and was doing his perky thing, I was thinking, what an annoying lead character. That's just going to be childish. I was wrong. And I'm glad I was wrong. He just kind of wants to fit in. Yeah. I was going to say that he kind of has this trying to find his place in life, kind of like Finn would when he's going to school. I kind of equated it to that, that he was trying to find his place among all his friends at school. So he's kind of feels like this nobody amongst all these people he sees every day and he doesn't really know where he should fit in. So he just tries to fit in with everybody because I think that's something that a lot of people do when they're younger. Is there any significance to the name, the Octan Corporation? Well, Octan have been going in Lego for ages. They've, oh. uh, they've, been, they've been part of the city sets. I mean, usually they were just uh, applied to the like the petrol tankers and things. But uh, no, Octan have been around for for years, like decades. Okay, cool. I think they used to have Shell sponsorship when I was a kid. It used to be Shell. They did. I had, a, I had a Shell piece. And I think at some point they they dropped away from that and, and introduced their own. 
first appeared in two Lego systems sets from 1992, a gas station and a tanker truck. So, yeah, it's been around, yeah, two decades. Two, cool. two, two and two. It's kind of after my time, but <laughs> with, with the toys the first time around, anyway. I think you'd have been, uh, yeah, you'd have been tuning out around about the same time as me. I sort of got into tech. Because you, you go past the townspeople and get into Technic for a bit, and then you either drift away from Lego or go back in with a vengeance. I think basically what made me go back in with a vengeance was um, the Lego Star Wars when I was 19. Yeah, they, they hit around by 97, didn't they? Or 96? No, 99. Yeah, the first oh. ones were episode one, Star Wars. I had a pod racer. And then after that, there were... Oh, no! No, actually, sorry. Sorry. There were, there were episode four ones before episode one There ones. were, I think, yeah. And then there was episode one one. So, yeah, it might have actually been a little bit earlier than that. Because, yeah, I think they were kind of knocking around in the studio I was working up before we actually got the thing to do the Lego Racers 2 deal. So they were definitely around. I think that we were kind of getting back into Lego. And I was oh, now we're making a Lego game. That'll be fun. But that <laughs> sort of legitimised adult collectors because it was, you know, suddenly, oh, no, 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 I'm not just getting it for toys to play with. This is a model of Star Wars, which I love, and that's okay. And I'm spending twice as much as I spend on a normal set for it, but... <laughs> Yeah, the Atat's fiercely yeah. expensive. Uh, first Lego Star Wars released in 1999 included the first Lego X-Wing, and uh, yeah, it was 99 then, uh, mm-hmm. and then immediately afterwards Phantom Menace sets. The bit where Emmett falls down the hole and then um, blows sideways down a bunch of tubes really felt like Little Big Planet for me. You know, the, the bit where he's just sort of like toppling down and bouncing around. Yeah, that does actually. I can't be honest. surprised I didn't spot that. If you remember when, when he falls on his spine onto a, a sort of a, a exact integer point between what appears to be leading off into anybody? Cloud Cuckoo Land! Correct. Cloud Cuckoo Land, full of ice creams and rainbows. And instead he falls to the left, full of knives and fire. And uh, then he uh, ends up down at the uh, bottom. And uh, can anyone tell me who was doing the voice of the piece of resistance, like the voice of the ring in this case? It's the kid. Yeah. He was saying, touch the piece. It's so interesting. (laughs) One of the things here is um, you could almost take this as him dropping Emmett into his box as opposed to putting him back into... Yeah. The regular city set, so that's why there's Cloud Cuckoo Land there and all the random assortment of stuff, is he just dropped it in and he just jumbled around as he moved his box away. Yeah. Ah, Especially as this cuts away. That means that the piece of resistance was just a lid on the floor that got piled into a bunch of other Lego stuff and cleared away. Yeah, scooping all his Lego off the floor and putting it back in his box. Oh my god! That's genius. Thank you. you. (laughs) If you think about this too, when we first start... Uh, when we first do this bit, um, we're told that it's a week before he's going to unleash the craggle. When he wakes up, it's three days or two days. I don't remember which one. Mm. So that was him being told to put up his Lego, and then he comes back a few days later to and pulls his stuff back out. Yeah. That was the way I kind of interpreted it this time when I was looking at it. I was like, because they make distinct mentions of time flowing. Mm, that's true. Imagine watching Toy Story and never getting to see what Andy's directly doing and just having Woody and uh, Buzz and company oblivious to Andy and company and then only finding out about uh, two-thirds of the way through that Andy is actually interacting with them. It would be interesting seeing Toy Story from 
basically Buzz's perspective for the most part before he really really registers to him. Yeah. Who Andy is and what's going on. Yeah, because he's the one who's completely subsumed in the fantasy of it. The bit where Emmett touches the um, the piece of resistance and immediately gets an overload of information, if that wasn't a direct reference to when Commander Shepard does that exact same thing in Mass Effect, I'll be very surprised. Because they even go through the same uh, like super-fast imagery of, of that exact reaction, and, and uh, Emmett is now suddenly party to more information than a figure of his stature should be aware of. Um, if you pause through that, you get to see uh, many shots of Vitruvius and his glowing eyes glowing very close. Um, there's the portal uh, that Emmett's going to be going down, and uh, then there's the man upstairs, and the boy upstairs. Uh, you get to see, you, you get to see briefly Emmett's head mounted upon his own legs, as in, like, he, he's it's on one of the leg pegs, a cat poster, uh, Lucy, you hear Lucy's voice, and at the very, very end, Sharon, what does, uh, who says what? Uh, Finn says, it's your turn to be the hero. Yeah. So just listen carefully next time you, you watch it. Basically, Finn's giving him his marching orders. I think the fact that, uh, is it in this, this flash where he hears, um, himself referred to as a blank slate? The claim slate. Yeah. <laughs> it, that kind of fits in with the idea of Emmett representing the inner child because his behavior more than anybody else's is dictated by the input that you get from president business. He's been telling everybody how to behave and how to fit in, but nobody embraces it like Emmett does because everybody else is, has, has got other stuff going on. But that's, that's effectively a child. If you, if you go with the idea of nurture rather than nature being the predominant motivating force in a child they come into the world as a as a clean slate and it's what the parents do that impacts on how they behave and how they grow up uh, just one more thing before we move on to bad cop uh, when you meet lucy for a brief moment here and you get her music I love the fact that it's very quiet, very calm, and very peaceful, which is completely at odds with Lucy herself, who's uh, in constant conflict with her own identity and the fact that she's constantly engaged in exciting breakneck action. Uh, It's almost like the combination of Emmett and Lucy will create kind of a harmony wherein they will be able to just basically take time out of all of this stuff at some point in the future. But it just seems like everything's sort of right when Emmett sees her at that point, which is a really sweet moment. Yes? Who do I say? Is it to do with Lucy? It's about Unikitty. Unikitty? I definitely want to hear that. You see what I'm doing with my clawed hands here? That means I don't want to hear that. (laughs) Not yet. Anyway, bad cop. (laughs) Bad cop, Liam Neeson, comedy genius, who would have thunk it? Um... Apparently, uh, they, they suggested, why don't you just deliver your good cop um, stuff in a separate performance, just so that you can sort of like get into these two different characters and two different mindsets. He was having none of it. He wanted to do both at the same time. And so that veering back and forth 
That's all in one session. Playing dumb, Master Builder. No, I Master Builder. Oh, so you've never heard of the prophecy? No, I, or I, the special? No, no, I'm a liar. Look here, you Look, um. <laughs> I watch a lot of cop shows on TV. Isn't there supposed to also be a... Isn't there supposed to be a good cop? Oh, yes. But we are not done yet. Hi, buddy. I'm your friendly neighborhood police officer. Would you like a glass of water? Yeah, yeah, actually. That's Too bad. Awesome. Yeah. We never got to hear his, his uh, good cop voice normally in most films he does. Just his scary voice. Hi, buddy. Hi, buddy. <laughs> However, this also comes uh, at the exact same time as the crushing disappointment at finding out people don't really care either way about you. To a degree, it's a little bit therapeutic because you can kind of have a fresh start, but it's a miserable sort of therapeutic moment. Kind of used to seeing this crush the hero spirit moment much later in a movie than this. Yeah. It's, it's unusual to have it. Right up front, almost. Yeah. Well, the way the hero's journey happens, this this normally has to happen when they go into the underworld. Dan, I just watched your um your two parter from uh, about a year ago or so ago about <laughs> Joseph Campbell's hero's journey with Lyra, and um, you're using Journey, the PS3 game, as an allegory for it. And yeah, the the underworld moment is the point where everything all just sort of falls away, but they play with it here. And they start him off from scratch in a kind of, I don't know, okay, you can rebuild yourself at this stage from this. And it's, it's, uh, I suppose it's heartening how he bounces back from it and doesn't, it, it still affects him. Um, but he doesn't spend the rest of the film moping about it. Well, he's allowed to come back partly because Lucy comes right up to his face and says, you are especially the most interesting person in the world, actually. That is very true. So, well, it's, uh, which is, makes it, very easy for him to emotionally bounce back after being like brought so low by this revelation. Mm. It, those two characters are actually the, they seem to be the only two who really have identity problems in the movie. Like, if anything else, most of the other characters are pursuing their own identity so strongly. All these other master builders, they know exactly who they are and yeah. what they're wanting to pursue being that it sort of distances them from each other. Whereas Emmett, is also really distanced from everybody, but it's ironically because he's trying to do the opposite thing. He is trying to pursue everybody and be and be like everybody to everybody at one time and just coming off as being nothing at all. You get the feeling that maybe Wildstyle started out as a fairly generic Lego woman with maybe some lipstick and then kind of tried to craft her own identity um, so many times over that she's become muddled along the way. Her motivation is much the same as his. It's she's wanting to she wants so badly to be mm. the special. I think they both kind of fall foul of the the thinking that because you live your life every day, so to you it's not special, it's not interesting. You can't conceive of anybody outside yourself thinking that it's interesting. And in Lucy, that manifests as trying to seem more interesting than she thinks she is, in spite of the fact that she is actually much more. Well, I mean, if you if you look at the fact that she sort of continues this tradition of heroines who are more engaging, more useful than the hero. Uh, Trinity is, is obviously the prime example. And also, as we mentioned in the Transformers podcast, Michaela has a little bit of that too. Mm. Um, but it's 
I, I kind of saw her, especially as she turns up so early in the film. I've, I've talked about with Pacific Rim. I really like the idea of having a, a male and a female set of characters basically carrying the, the core of the film and that if they're sort of not two halves of the same whole, cause that's ridiculous and very romantic focused, but the idea that you have this kind of anima animus balance and they are, they do have similar elements to their, uh, their self-expression. And as you say, their, their questioning of their identity and being very acutely aware of how other people see them, albeit that in Emmett's case, it actually takes having to have this litany of people on the screen telling him that they don't really notice him. It also retroactively gives the Matrix a little extra depth because it kind of makes you think, well, maybe Morpheus found Trinity and thought she was the one for a while. And she was, you know, because she was the one who hacked the IRSD base. And uh, you know, most people thought she was a guy. And so she was very, very special. And then it turned out she wasn't the one. And it was actually this Neo chap. So then she had to be in the role of helper. Mm-hmm. We'll cover that when we get to the Matrix. But, uh, you know, ma- major points here for uh, Elizabeth Banks. Um, Okay, very breathy performance, and she she puts a lot into it. Mm. She is as well kind of the motivating element at this point. She's driving Emmett forward when otherwise he wouldn't be moving. Yeah. Literally. Um, these are um, some of the things that uh, you folks uh, may be able to find if you pause it. When Bad Cop throws a cup, two blue studs fly out, representing the water. The Octan, the big oil business, uh, is the Lego company that Finn has used as an allegory for whatever his father does. Will you please tell me what is happening? I'm rescuing you, sir. You're the one the prophecy spoke of. You're the special. Me? You found the piece of resistance, and the prophecy states that you are the most important, most talented, most interesting, and most extraordinary person in the universe. That's you, right? Uh, yes. That's me. Great, you drive. What? Various signs before they crash through the wall to get to the uh, Wild West say, you should not be here, no go zone, off limits, out of bounds, stay out of here, this area is forbidden. And anybody, what's that a reference to? All the signs around all the tables for all the sets that were... uh the man upstairs has. Absolutely right. Uh, and then when all the uh, cops crash into the, uh, the the wall behind them, it's a Blues Brothers pile-up. Uh, I'm going to do President Business first because these two next two bits interlink, but we can do the Wild West bit all in one go. Now, this is a child's view on what his dad does for work. It's kind of charming and at the same time a little bit sad to see that this is what Finn thinks his dad does. It's obviously a lot more exciting than what his dad actually does. This is where uh, business um, lays out his plan of demanding total perfection. I don't know if, if this is what the man upstairs really did require of uh, his colleagues and his son, but if that's his son's viewpoint on what he wants, it, it, it's really disheartening, and thus it makes the win at the end all that much more significant. I mean, it's exaggerated for comedy effect, but to actually demand perfection is something somewhat ridiculous. This is kind of the key point for me of of what the whole film hinges on, although I didn't realise this until it got to the end the first time that I'd seen it. It's, to me, it's about 
thematically examining this borderline between socialization and control because obviously if you if you are a parent or if you are a teacher or anybody who's in charge of molding young minds you can't let them run amok that's not going to work but the idea of over controlling them of of taking socialization and pushing it into utter rigidity that doesn't work either so it it kind of reminds me of the um uh, the the examination of innocence and experience from uh, william blake the i've got a quote here from wikipedia about the uh, uh, the songs of innocence and experience the the book of poetry Blake's categories are modes of perception that tend to coordinate with a chronology that would become standard in Romanticism. Childhood is a state of protected innocence rather than original sin, but not immune to the fallen worlds and its institutions. This world sometimes impinges on childhood itself and in any event becomes known through experience, a state of being marked by the loss of childhood vitality, by fear and inhibition, by social and political corruption and by the manifold oppression of church, state and the ruling classes. Now, this is obviously what is happening to Finn on some level and what he is still trying to fight against. But my interpretation of, of what Blake was trying to say was that innocence kind of has to be broken out of in order to enable the inner child to grow and be able to operate in the world. And it, a child, as they grow older, have to be able to protect themselves rather than just relying on other already experienced people to do that for them. But to be able to do that without losing that childhood spirit, that energy of creation and desire that is so fresh and important to allow society as a whole to progress. Because if it's if it's rigid and it's so controlled that nothing can ever change, then you lose that flexibility you lose that ability to adapt which frankly is one of my favorite human qualities and if you control too much you end up with no life and everything gets stuck wonderful fantastic would you cancel my two o'clock this next meeting could run a little bit deadly Light sequence. Flame test. Engage dramatic entrance. Badcock! Lord Business, I know the special got away, but don't be so serious. Where's the other guy? <laughs> hey, buddy. I missed you. Oh, did you really? Have I ever shown you my relic collection? Nope. I don't think you have. Nobody knows where this stuff comes from. This one is the cloak of Bandaid. I hear it's super painful to take off. You want to try it on? Well, um... No, but thank you. The face-raising thing is pretty scary. Yeah. Had, bad, had good cop been screaming in pain, it might not have gotten a you. Yeah, it's just total silence. Yeah. Yeah, the little squeaky noise of it being clean. It's almost worse that he doesn't struggle. The micromanagers, they're basically the sentinels from the Matrix. This was made by the same effects company as the Matrix movies. So it's like this remaking and this reimagining of these movies that they put all of their time and effort into already. It's kind of in the best hands. Yeah, the Animal Logic has made their kind of halfway between a visual effects studio and occasionally 
an animation studio as well. Yeah. I mean, they've worked on like The Great Gatsby and uh, and The Matrix and Three Hundred and a bunch and done visual effects for some Harry Potter movies and it just and Hero and House of Flying Daggers and and Moulin Rouge and a bunch of stuff. But they will occasionally also make an actual animated feature like Happy Feet or The Legend of the Guardians or easily, this one easily their best of those. Did they make Legend of the Guardians? Uh, they did, yeah. The Owls of Gahul. Oh, sorry, I was thinking that. of Rise of the Guardians. So right. Hard not to get the two confused. It's, it's you can't be blamed for. <laughs> Actually, I had a question for y'all about Good Cop, Bad Cop. Is that a, supposed to be a defective Lego piece? Because I don't know of any Lego minifig that has faces on both sides of it. Yeah, no, that's been going since Professor Quirrell, the okay. uh, in the Harry Potter sets uh, in uh, the original Prisoner of Azkaban. So what? 14 years now. I, it's been a while. So all I, the Harry, almost all the Harry Potter figures have two heads. One, one usually excited or scared, and the other one more happy and smiley. Lower Star Wars ones do as well. Wild Star figures. New today. The Wild Star figure is quite fun for that because the two inspections are barely imperceptibly any different. One's, <laughs> one's got slightly more of a smirk. <laughs> oh yes, I like this one more. <laughs> I did wonder actually if uh, uh, Mom and Dad cop are actually Finn's grandparents. And this is how he's seen his dad behaving towards his own parents. Oh, God, because, of course, yeah, any authority figure like this, Finn's going to be using his father as a role, like, to rough him up, but to make bad cop part of his father uh, as well. It's a very dark scene. (laughs) Yeah. Especially, you know, since uh, uh, what you mentioned before, about eight and a half years ago, his father killed all creativity, including his good cop side. It just took this long for Finn to uh, recount this in Fable by reenacting it in, with Lego. I wonder if he actually really did wipe up, uh, use the, uh, <laughs> the Polish remover of Nail. That would be horrendous. <laughs> If he had. It's interesting, actually, because this is something that children will do frequently. If if something's happened to them that scared them or um, or upset them in some way and they find it difficult to talk about it, mm. by reenacting it with toys, they kind of – it gives them a way to gain some measure of control over it and possibly even change the ending to play out to how they would have preferred it to be. It's like conscious dreaming. Mm. They actually use it in part of child psychology, especially um, when something very traumatic has happened. Back to the fun stuff. Actually, no, maybe not. This is this is more insidious. Um, There's just a throwaway line. Coffee sales are through the roof. Well, let's raise the roof to be even higher. Now, there, right there, is just a two-sentence summation of the triple-A video game and movie industry. If Call of Duty makes a billion dollars, now every AAA game has to make a billion dollars. Because suddenly the, the the bar has been raised, we know we can make that much, and so, well, Square Enix are never going to be happy. That's one of the things I love about this movie, actually, is that it works very well on a lot of different levels at once. Because on its most basic level, it's a really incredibly entertaining, funny, well-executed family film. It's also a really great examination of the way Lego is used and the way those toys have fit into our lives over all these decades. It's also like a great, like, it's a great story in a larger meta level sense that you really appreciate on further viewings, a great sort of father son story. And beyond that, and the thing that I think takes it from being like a fun movie to a really great one is that it's also uses its subject matter 
like of Lego, which is one of the most creatively driven toys this planet has ever had, to say bucket loads about the nature of creativity and collaboration and even the business of those things. Yeah. And it says all of those things at once very well. And so few movies manage to be successfully about two things at once. <laughs> yeah, and it did it in such a way that many people just sort of went to see it and went, oh, that was actually quite touching, and then went away without really thinking too hard about the other things that it was in, that were in there. But sometimes that's the best way to do it, because you, if you just plant the seeds and then let people go away and mull them over themselves, that can often work better than just hammering everything to their forehead before they've even left the cinema. Well, let me tell you who did notice. Fox News. They consider this to be a liberal treatise on the evils of big business. They think that about 80 to 90% of things. So. The thing that's interesting about it is that the, the way that the end works, Finn shows great respect for his father. Finn shows adoration for his father and says, you can accomplish so much big business. All you have to do is stop being a jerk. And if Fox News take home from that is, we reserve the right to be jerks. What's wrong with that? You're doing it wrong. <laughs> Hollywood pushing its anti-business message to our kids. First, it was the Muppets movie. Remember, they used an oil baron as the enemy. A year later, it was the Lorax casting environmentalists against anyone who dared to create a new business. And, well, now it's the Lego movie with the villain named President Business. You know, listen, Hollywood has its own agenda and we're kind of used to this, but it feels, it feels a little bit more threatening when they start to push this out to our kids over and over. Well, I think that when you have movies based on characters and, and you're trying to find a villain within those characterizations, oftentimes the head of a corporation is an easy target. Why? And an easy, why, why uh, is the head of a corporation the where they hire people, people go to work, they pay their rent, the mortgage, they put their kids through college, they feed their families, they give to charities, they give to churches. Why would the CEO be right. an easy target? Uh, you know, it's it's really just, I think, it's a simple way to make a villain out of somebody who is uh, has power, who has money. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. I'm just saying that when you look at the history of film, you see this happen all the time. And the Hudsucker Proxy was a movie from a few years ago where there was this giant corporation and Tim sure. Robbins was this lowly worker and Paul Newman was at the top of that corporation. He was kind of the evil one. And Lego, I think, though, is interesting because it does appeal hugely to kids. But let's say this, at least if it gets a dialogue going, I mean, to have kids even thinking about business, maybe it can start a debate within a household. I don't know All if right, kids well. look at it that way, though, but the parents certainly do. And, and that can uh, have an influence, no question about it. Paul, it's and Monica Crowley here. I, next week is actually yeah. more anti-business, I would say, than, than a lot of movies. Robocop is all about the big corporation taking over a city for evil purposes and that yeah, kind that's of That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. We haven't been talking about that one. But Paul, you're right to say that Hollywood has long been dominated by the far left, which is very anti-capitalist. Um, and we've seen these movies over the decades. I think about It's a Wonderful Life, where uh, Mr. Potter, the banker, is considered you know, the villain in that movie. Do you think, I mean... For Hollywood, it's all about the bottom line. So they will hire a Republican star like Sylvester Stallone or Bruce Willis if they think that they can carry a movie and make money. What is the purpose of trying to indoctrinate kids in a movie? I mean, I guess they believe this movie is going to make a lot of money. So no matter what, they can embed these kinds yeah. of anti-capitalist messages and get away with it. You're defending well, Mr. Thing Potter? Is, I, I, yeah, actually. Well, okay, well, I, <laughs> 
Well, I think at at the end of the day, I mean, these are big corporations uh, that are producing these movies, and they are making a lot of money off these movies. So it is all about capitalism. Remember, too, it's a free market economy. So but, you if know, people but don't quickly, want to go see the movie, but, they don't have to. But let's, but let's talk about the details of Lord right? Business. Let's talk about who President we, we Business is quickly. He came up through history books, voting machines, the dairy product, and coffee industry. When Lego was really about building, right? Yeah. Building things. Yeah, so I, mean, just, that is, yeah. I mean, that is yeah, it. Paul, you know, here's the thing, and we're going to have to let you yeah. go, but, you know, I, again, we're used to it being beamed at adults and we can make our own decisions, but we're talking about very young kids seeing this being impressionable, and it's it, it smacks a hypocrisy, right. and I don't know, I think there's something well, wrong with it uh, for sure. So we're now in the Old West. So yeah, this is the... Uh, they could easily, and this is something I'm really grateful for, they could have made this the Lone Ranger range. They could have made the Pirates bit the Pirates of the Caribbean range. Obviously, they'd have been playing in both cases into Disney's hands here, and there's only like a passing reference to a Disney property, which I think at the time when it was put together may even have not been a Disney property back when they were you know, originally programming the whole Millennium Falcon scene. They didn't. And thus it didn't date. If that's, imagine if that bit had been all Lone Ranger related. Eesh. Like, you know, when it was made, we were thinking the Lone Ranger was going to be a big, you know, success and not the complete failure that it turned out to be. I think the point here, though, was to deliberately keep it as as classic as possible. I mean, Mm. these are, not only are they classic lines that, are introduced as the idea of the uh, the zones at this point and i think the lord of the rings lego has probably become embedded enough now to be considered a classic one um but it's also you're talking middle zealand here yes yeah. um <laughs> i mean a lot of that's very it's knights really basically the, the the main four classic ones are city check space which they were going to spend the longest time in but they had to kind of cut that bit out but they have benny there to represent space um knights uh, which is sort of the Middle Zealand section, which was actually kind of underdone, but again, gets referenced repeatedly. And Pirates, which thanks to Metalbeard, you got tons of as well. So they're all there. Mm. And the Wild West one was actually a, a, a big line that's been on and off, but it's not one of the recognized classics ones. So it's a long time to spend in a place which wouldn't automatically be, be something people would associate with Lego. Not with Lego, but it's one of the kind of archetypical perceptions of what a child's imagination will create if you send them off to play cowboys and indians and it's it's kind of this reclaiming in a way of the the child nature that has been stripped out by bricksburg and it's over emphasis on rules and restrictions and regulations and also you've got the fact that the whole point of the american old west was we want to be somewhere where no one can tell us what to do yeah specifically the west uh, and we here at this point uh, we enter Vitruvius and his wonderful design. I don't know if I mentioned it before. As well as his tie-dyed shirt, he's wearing Crocs. Just pause it for just a moment. He's wearing those annoying clogs, the plastic ones that, uh, again, President Business would absolutely hate. I really do not understand what everybody has against Crocs. I mean, I don't wear them. I, I'm not particularly blown away by them myself. But there is a, a 
seemingly inappropriate level of hate directed you, at footwear here. You can't run in them. Well, you can't run in a lot of shoes. People don't <laughs> like hate flip-flops in the same way. I hate flip-flops. Okay, you hate flip-flops in the same way. Yeah. Uh, yeah f- write in, folks, if you guys uh, do or don't like Crocs. Or mention it on the forum. <laughs> start this big Croc debate. We shall call... I'll start a thread called What a Croc. Anyway. <laughs> on the topic of Vitruvius's entrance again, I love the fact that his staff is a lollipop. Yes. A lot of people missed that the first time around. Originally, it was going to be a, uh, a regular Lego staff with a jewel on the end, but I think they just they went that little bit further, and he's holding one of these mystic artifacts which filter in from the real world. And his rubber band around his head. Mm. But one of the other things I did notice when they're... Wildstyle or Lucy was talking about all the sets. We go, you know, Wild West, Middle Zealand, and then the ones we don't talk about. <laughs> are they all Finn's sets? Are they the ones that he, Finn has plays with and the ones that are in the box oh, later? Speed Racer, Bionicle, and Fabulous. resentful of because they don't fit with anything else. Yeah. Somebody on the film really likes Fabuland because it crops up a lot in this. I had yeah. some Fabuland toys. And they're basically kind of like slightly smaller Duplo, aren't they? Yeah, yeah they were kind of like a between set. Because yeah. there are heads of the Fabuland guys on the walls in the yes, bar here. There are. You do briefly get to see uh, a giant map of uh, what uh, this entire, mo- the, uh, basically a hot helicopter eye view of what this model would look like. And they include Octan HQ on the far left, Atlantis, which was a Lego line, Dino Island, another Lego line, Cape Space, which is basically off to the side so that it's, it's all the space stuff is separate because it, you know, you can't have space and, uh, regular Lego interacting. Pharaoh's Quest, a slightly lesser known Lego line. Pirate's Cove, Vikings Landing, Middle Zealand, Bricksburg, the Old West, Vladek's Realm. Sharon? Uh, Vladek was the, basically the bad guy from the second wave of knights. Um, sets, I think. So it's another nighty type area. Yeah. And then there's the forest of obsolete products, which I think that um, may relate to uh, what, what basically becomes Finn's You're Allowed to Play With This, uh, from which he creates the not-on-the-map-at-all Cloud Cuckoo Land. And there's also the Technic Mecha Mine, which um, Mecha Mine implies it's just another big box because uh, uh, the man upstairs dabbled with Technic for a while and tried, you know, tried to sort of uh, make it into something very uh, mechanical and mathematical, but then just abandoned it because he was more into the idea of modelling. You see, um, you see a few Technic sets around the walls in the basement. At the end. Yeah, there's a couple that are sitting on shelves in the background. I will mention something that bothers me a little bit about both Benny and Vitruvius. Anybody got any ideas on on why those particular two? It's not about how their role in the film. Their role in the film is brilliant and well-realised. It's their role in the toy world. Anybody? I should know this. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's that they're really bloody hard to get. Like, crazy hard. Like, if I went on eBay right now and tried to get hold of an actual Benny and not just a, a classic spaceman, which would set me back about £10, an actual Benny, £20. A Vitruvius, right. about the same, because they're only available in the spaceship set... And, uh, the sea cow. And maybe a couple of others. It bothers me because they're major aspects of the movie and kids love Benny. But not putting him in with the mix of, uh, the, uh, bagged Lego figures means that 
let's face it, kids with low budgets, poor kids, kids on pocket money budgets, cannot afford to ever get hold of Benny. And there that are some bothers poor, me. Yeah, there are some poor choices in the, uh, the blind bag sets this time, I thought. Yeah. Wily Fusebot, do we really need that over Benny? No Vitruvius, do we, you know, do we, do we really need the, uh, the overbearing secretary more? There's something slightly elitist about Lego in that you can love Lego like I do and love Lego like Lyra does, but unless you have got a fairly large disposable budget, and that's fine either way, but you're the only people who are going to be able to have access to the sea cow or to Benny's spaceship. I don't have £90 to spend on a Lego kit. Did you see the um, the, the Comic-Con exclusive Unikitty? Which one is that? It's um, it's just it's, it's the normal Unikitty but with a different face to normal. Yeah. You see how much they go for on eBay? How much? About two hundred quid. It's not Lego for fourteen pieces. That the secondary market gen- yeah. like, like, like explodes this stuff, but they are very well aware of that, and they are also aware that you know that they decided whether or not to put Benny in this mix or not, and they made Benny only available here. The glider model, there's one way, like, the thing that Wildstar builds and is used for about half a minute when they jump out of the, um, the, the Wild West section before it turns into a giant cart. Um, that was the perfect place to stick for Trivius because he was there on that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And maybe at some point they'll make Benny and Vitruvius easier to get hold of in smaller sets. So, yeah, that's just my little bugbear there. Okay, I think it is time for Lyra to go to bed, so say goodnight, Lyra. Night, night. You can probably record her, let her go for 10 minutes on things she liked in the movie and edit them in. That is a good thought. Yeah, I'll see if I can get that done in the uh, the post-edit. Yeah, good thinking. What are you doing? We are entering your mind. What? To prove that you have the unlocked potential to be a master builder. Whoa, are we inside my brain right now? It's big. I must be smart. Mm-hmm. I'm not hearing a lot of activity here. I don't think he's ever had an original thought in his life. <laughs> That's not true. For instance, one time I wanted to have a bunch of my friends over to watch TV, not unlike this TV that just showed up magically, and not everybody can fit on my one couch, and I thought to myself, well, what if there was such a thing as a bunk bed, but as a couch? Introducing the double-decker couch, so everyone could watch TV together and be buddies. That is literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Please, Wildstyle, let me handle this. That idea is just the worst. Okay, so uh, anything about the Wild West section up to the point where they crash through the sun that um, that struck <laughs> you in in particular? Well, there's the very large bat in the room. <laughs> it's just before that far. <laughs> just every, every bit up to the point where Batman turns up. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, I like that the all the bricks and pieces in this section are more sun bleached and kind of a bit yeah. dirty and more scratched and it's quite a nice sort of slightly different feel like it's been left out <laughs> in the garden or something. Apparently they uh tracked down the guy who did all the whistling for the Ennio Morricone uh, music for the uh all of the um Sergio Leone uh westerns. So he was the one who went And they got him. <laughs> it was a tiny little animation thing, but I loved noticing uh, on Wild Style when she's in her kind of full Old West dress and uh, Emmett mentions the uh, 
Taco Tuesday thing, and she's like, come on, we have to go. She kind of does a little motion as if she's sort of lifting up her skirt to run faster, although it's just a little piece, so it doesn't move at all. Nice. <laughs> but she, it feels like a sort of let's go sort of motion. When she hocks a loogie into the spittoon, you get a single, like, one frame, maybe two, of a, uh, a, a see-through blue stud gauzing out of her mouth. <laughs> it's I gross, also- but brilliant little uh, touch. I oh. love the fact that Vitruvius is playing everything is awesome on the piano. Yes, that's good piano. Uh, bad cops, fantastic police horse. Yeah, with the siren on the nose. And uh, this is also a treasure trove of um, uh, if you collect the Lego uh, f- series figures, the little individual bagged ones. Loads of them turn up here. Where uh, when Wildstar's talking about sort of the history of the Lego master builders. So yeah, it's, uh, I'm not even going to list them, but uh, there's loads. This might be Morgan Freeman's funniest performance in anything ever. Oh, yeah. Apparently he had never done any animation before, which seems just mind-boggling. Maybe everyone thought, oh, he's not going to want to do this. He's a very serious man. Yeah, they mentioned that in the commentary, and saying all you kind of had to do was ask. Yeah. <laughs> There's... This is a weird one. I'm fairly certain the bit where they're, they're talking about making their own submarine, um, and Unikitty starts talking about, uh, you know, and... and Purple berries and uh, Batman's talking about it being dark and mysterious. Vitruvius says, and it can have magical dream catchers. Is that a reference to the film Dreamcatcher? Which he was in, and it was rubbish. If it isn't, then that's a alarming coincidence. There are also Fabuland heads on the wall, as I think someone mentioned earlier. And for some one of the gags in this, I don't know why I always find it so goddamn hilarious, but it's when um, she tells him to pretend he's a stool, and his immediate response is to shout, come sit on me. All you have to do is blend in and act like you belong here. Ah, oh, perfect. Well, hi there, I'm a cowboy. Bang, 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 bang. Shoot, 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 bullet, bullet, gun. Zap, 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 pow, zap, pow. Yeah. What are they looking at? I, 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 I made a mistake. You should just be still, act like a stool. Wait! Howdy, guys! Quiet. Nope, stools don't, don't talk. Don't sit on me! Stools don't talk. Okay, shh. Let me show you how it's done. <gasps> what a light! Okay, let me just find the wizard and get this over with. <gasps> there he is. What's your obvious? Who? I've never heard of that man, whom I am not. Who are you? It's me. I am a blind man and cannot see. It's wild style. Are you a DJ? What? Why is everybody... Oh, wait, wait. Were you the student I used to have who was so insecure she kept changing her name? No, no, no. Yeah, first Dark Storm, then Gemini Zen, and never smiled in three faced and snazzy pants. Okay, all right, yes. Meet me upstairs in ten seconds. Also, the bit when she talks to Vitruvius and he says, "What are you a DJ?" Um, in re- relation to the Wild Star, which is what Emmett also asked her. That might be a reference to anybody. DJ Wild Star in. Ah, oh, rings a bell. <sighs> Grand Theft Auto Vice City. <laughs> he was the one who did all the uh, rap and hip hop uh, um, radio. Wild Star is pirate radio. Get it right, but not for too much longer. We've been in the class by ourselves, giving you the music from the streets for so damn long that now we're going legit. I do love hearing some of the other names she went by during training. Mm-hmm. It's like no smiles. Yep, never smile. That was Dark Storm, then Geminizzle, then Never Smile, then Freak Face, then Snazzy Pants. And again, it's just delivered in this incredibly dry manner, but it's just... I really hope Freeman does loads more animated work before he uh, uh, before he retires. 
I love the delightful mystery of around Vitruvius's little. Let's puts together the little star wand and the fish thing and says, your training begins now. And starts what was that going to <laughs> Exactly. Let me talk about the birds. They're going to round the master builders up. Just they'll, they will fly off to an internet cafe. Where so many <laughs> That's the thing, because again, this subverts the whole um, Morpheus and Merlin trope of the wise man. And it make you, you're, yeah, especially since it's Morgan Freeman. Uh, and you'd expect him to just have this incredible amount of dignity. And he does. But at the same time, he also seems like a mad old man who, um, his, uh, his crazy ways may result in something incredible happening or they may result in a massive waste of time. But we never get to find out because there's many chase sequences. He may just throw some birds through a closed window and then yeah. they fall apart. <laughs> Are we talking about Emmett's mind in this section as well? Or is yeah, that yeah, no, yes, it's, later? it's a construct from the Matrix. It is, and I just, that creepy, gnarled hand, it's just like, when he first starts talking, we're like, okay, he's talking about a person, just seeing that thing emerge from the the Lego bricks, it's like, that is kind of creepy, Yeah, like, getting a Lego eye view of what it would look like for us to play with the minifig. Mm, to be forcibly manipulated by a god hand. And then, of course, the running gag with the double-decker couch yeah which uh, the, the gag about i think even the president business says you know if you're sitting on the bottom would you not have people's legs dangling in front of you no because they're lego guys and they sit neatly on the top i wonder if this was a passing joke that or you know something that finn could have said to his father at one point about you know he like maybe they didn't have enough room on the couch for the whole family yeah it's like well we need like a double-decker couch maybe he has a double-decker bed or you know double bed like that, and it's like, well, what if we had a couch or something like that? I, I mean, that seems is, yeah, that, that seems specific. like something a something a kid would come up with. Yes, yeah. at the very so, least, it seems like something. Be buddies. Yeah, at the very least, it seems like something he would have built maybe as a, when he was a bit younger. Mm. That his that his dad would have looked like at like Lord Business would and said that's weird, and then listed off all the practical reasons why it's a dumb idea. Yeah, But at the same time, it's, it's hard not to agree with them, in that it, it doesn't actually make any sense logistically speaking, especially since if you actually made the damn thing, whoever's on the top's going to hit their head on the ceiling, depending on the size of your, your room. But at the same time, it's from things that don't really make a lot of sense that some of the best inventions can actually come. That's one of my favorite... There are a lot of little beautiful metaphors in this movie, but that's one of my favorite ones, even in a way that comments on creation of stuff in general. Like, Emmett's dumb idea, cohesively executed, works where the uncoordinated efforts of five masters running wild with their personal styles doesn't. Yeah. Like, it's dumb and it's stupid and it's really hard to see the point in it, but he executes it well and it holds together. That's it's something that keeps cropping up in a lot of the Disney behind the scenes stuff that we've been watching as well that the animators keep coming back to over and over again that you have to be willing to put forward all your ideas so that everybody can sift through them chuck out the ones that really don't work but the ones that have a kernel of this could be something brilliant other people can pick it up and do things with it that you couldn't think of so never be afraid to put your ideas forward even the ones that you don't think are much cop. Yeah, I love how this movie sort of it legitimizes both playing and being creative with your own unique style, going away, like dropping the instructions and creating your own thing, but also glorifies 
like coming together to work on a coat like working together like dropping some of your like own weird unique ideas that don't fit that singular vision and being able to create something bigger and more like that it glamorizes both of those ideas in their own way and for their own purpose and i love that it manages to strike that balance and not just swing completely to one side or the other and say that this is the right way to do it. One more thing as they're escaping in the homage to the uh, Wild West DeLorean uh, onto the homage to the Wild West DeLorean train also uh, like a double homage to Toy Story 3's train sequence where the train goes toppling over the bridge um, um, there's a pig on board and it falls off and explodes into a shower of sausages. There's also a slightly earlier fart gag. I don't normally, normally laugh at fart gags, but this one tickled me, where there's an old timer in a water tower and some uh, fairly well-placed Lego stud bubbles. It's just a half second, but it's enough to sort of uh, get you back on board to sort of the uh, the humour that you, you're about to go into for the, uh, the saloon scene. There's also a bit of a gag that I don't, I don't get, but it's still really funny, where... All of the crocodiles in the river at the bottom of the canyon oh, police have, have police hats and police sirens on them. See, I was wondering. Sense, I can't even figure why it's there, but it's funny. I was wondering if they'd like fused with the uh, the cowpokes who fell down there. But I was like, no, hang on, they're cowboys, not policemen. But again, it's it's the the illogic of a child of going, right? Well, obviously, there's going to be police crocodiles down the bottom as well, because when you're a child and you're you're free forming ideas, you can come up with all kinds of. Uh, things which don't actually have to make sense because you're just coming up with them. That's why stuff like Adventure Time is filled with that kind of thing and Axe Cop. It's the kind of weird humor that I've come to love from Lord and Miller films. Yeah. Now, enter Batman as a commentary on Batman. Now, Josh Garrity has mentioned uh, on Twitter, uh, and he's absolutely right, that people using Darkness No Parents as a uh, way to dismiss the entire Nolan trilogy of Bat films are, what would be the word? Being a bit lazy. Being a bit lazy, yeah. So, however, since uh, I have made 17 Batman podcasts, I think I can, I think I'm in the clear. But while it doesn't diminish the brilliance and quality specifically of the original Dark Knight this depiction of Batman addresses everything that has started to really bug me about Batman before the Lego movie came out um, and was kind of also brilliantly encapsulated by the Batman YouTube videos which uh, I may have uh, stuck a few elements in the X-Men shows Make the I broke you how have you come back? You're the only one who can learn the strength to escape. It is a notification that the pendulum swing has, has stayed too far in one particular uh, direction for Batman himself. I don't think it's uh, so much necessarily a comment on the Nolan Batmans as it is the attempt of everyone else to imitate the Nolan Batmans and take superheroes and make them all into dark Batman. and brooding and oppressive and yeah basically so yeah, spider-man's now like batman green arrow's now like batman superman's now like batman wonder woman's now like batman indeed by everyone else by the way i do acknowledge that marvel aren't really doing this although they did a bit with the x-men marvel aren't doing the x-men that's fox okay it's kind of the austin powers and you know syndrome you know, they're they're mocking it in such a way that they're pointing out all these little things that we've come to see in recent years with Batman and superheroes. And yeah. 
it's hopefully we'll make some changes because people start to realize how silly it is, like the batarang sequence later. <laughs> First try. This version of Batman seems to have migrated to the next um, Lego game. I don't know if you've seen yeah, the trailer Lego for Batman Lego 3, yeah. Lego Batman Three. It's basically this Batman. Yeah. What a interesting and brilliant choice to cast Will Arnett mm. for this because he can do this deep kind of goofy raspy voice and did often on Arrested Development but is also brilliantly funny he's excellent at playing very brittle vulnerable characters who are always trying to be a lot cooler than they actually are absolutely yeah it's perfect <laughs> no you're giving advice to the guy in the 10 million dollar bat suit come on I mean, I guess Lord Miller don't really do that kind of joke, but I was half expecting a suit cost reference much yeah. later on when he does go into his Bruce disguise. To, to assess his own worth. Yeah. Worst that can happen is I can spill, spill some on my $3,000 suit. Come on! Hey, need a hand with that? No, well, I want to spill booze all over my fucking $6,300 suit. Come on! Oh, hey. The guy in the, the $4,000 suit is holding the elevator, but the guy doesn't make that in three months. Come on! You certainly do love those suits. Well, <laughs> seven grand, you better believe I love them. <laughs> I mean, look, look what you're wearing. You look like crap. Anything all right? Still want people's kids getting their sticky little fingers all over these $2,600 pants. Throughout the film, they kind of make Batman out to be a jerk, but a kind of a lovable, pitiable jerk. In a kind of he's, he's 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 hapless. They make him out to be this sort of video artist, studenty type as well. Like um, the whole the whole darkness no parents song, which we'll play for you now, is accompanied on the uh, Blu-ray by a, a really kind of first year college video project. Yes, this is real music. Dark, brooding, important, groundbreaking. Check out the lyrics. No parents Continue darkness More darkness, get it? The opposite of light Black hole Curtains drawn In the basement Middle of the night Blacked out windows Other places that are dark Black coffee You get it, that's just the first verse Darkness No parents Super rich Kinda makes it better Yeah, it just, it takes the moody aspect of what Batman is that's really been amped up and glorified a lot in in hits in just the Batman character in general in our media in the last decade and makes it posturing mm. and makes it just someone who a lot like wild style is desperately wanting to be perceived as cool yeah. and important and just completely like sweeps the leg out from under that image in Shoot doing so leg. relax everybody i'm here batman what's up babe babe what Oh, sorry, Batman. This is Emmett. Emmett, this is my boyfriend, Batman. I'm Batman. That's your boyfriend? Hey, babe. What? Let's hold hands. 
So, uh... Hey, guys. I think we're about to crash into the sun. Yeah, but it's going to look really cool. Anybody who is constantly trying to be or being portrayed as being the most awesome, there's some reason for that. They're overcompensating for something. Mm. It's just that acknowledging that has now become, you know, the thing du jour. I think in an ideal world, and I don't know if this is really going to be true with what's coming up with Batman and Superman, having him be set up like next to characters like Superman and Wonder Woman exposes him as being a very moody, very kind of standing next to someone. Captain bring down. Yeah, basically (laughs) I think it exposes him to be a little bit more posturing or at least a little bit more just, Oh, the moody guy. And it feels like he needs to be alongside another character to kind of, frame what the his character were way off topic <laughs> no, no no you were, you were doing well, well uh, no, i was, was, was going to okay, say that's yeah. kind of the best thing about him in the justice league is that you've got this um relief between superman batman and wonder woman and they they all kind of amplify each other so you get to see the elements of their characters that when they're on their own you just don't see because there's nothing to compare them to That's a much better way of putting what I was stumbling and trying to say. I'm just going to come right out. I have no idea what's going on or what this place is at all. I am Princess Unikitty, and I welcome you all to Cloud Cuckoo Land. So there's no signs or anything. How does anyone know what not to do? Here in Cloud Cuckoo Land, there are no rules. There's no government, no babysitters, no bedtimes, no crowny faces, no bushy mustaches, and no negativity of any kind. You just said the word no like a thousand times. And there's also no consistency. I hate this place. Any idea is a good idea, except the not happy ones. Those you push down deep inside where you'll never, ever, ever, ever find them. Am I allowed to say it all kind of looks a bit like it's adventure time? Uh, was it um, Vaughn who said, I see no correlation? Uh, I think it was I think Lauren, it was Lauren. Lauren, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Lauren's a big fan. Okay, right. The kid is called Finn. And he's only mentioned, this is only mentioned like sort of like, uh, it's muttered by the man upstairs once, and I think one more time, but it's not made a big deal of. Um, and it could just be a major coincidence, but if you've been watching Adventure Time for several series, you'll, um, that you'll surely agree that there is uncanny similarities between a boy who's seemingly imagining incredible things to uh, understand or possibly to block out something that's far more um, serious and somber. Anybody want in on this one? I've not really seen enough Adventure Time to comment yet. So. Oh, okay, I've only Same seen the down. first. I've only seen the first two seasons, and obviously a lot more gets revealed in three, four, five, etc. But uh, Sharon. Well, I think that there's only really a couple of what I considered to be particularly overt uh, visual parallels um one was that you've got the 
um, you know, the, the huge animals that they've got in the background that's sort of basically part of the architecture. There's a huge yellow bird which has very similar colouring and very similar eyes to Jake, Jake. the dog. Yeah. Um, and if you look at Unikitty's eyes as well, a lot of the ways that their um, their facial expressions are drawn is extremely similar to how um, they're done in Adventure Time. But behind this big, huge yellow bird is a, is the dog dome. So you've got this massive dog that's overseeing everything, which is effectively Jake's role in Adventure Time. Um, and then when everything's gone to pot and it all exploded and they're all running around screaming, uh, there's a rainbow-coloured unicorn on fire uh, that goes streaking across the screen. Lady, Lady Rainicorn, Rainicorn, who is a very, very long, stretchy, pink and multicoloured unicorn. At least beyond a doubt that uh, Unikitty is at least in some way related to the sudden popularity in My Little Pony, Friendship with Magic. Yes, yeah. And I would say that there's uh, there's links between um, Friendship is Magic and uh, Adventure Time as well. On that topic, when they... This is in the next section, but when they were doing the infiltration of Lord Business's tower, she puts the dollar sign when she's disguised as Business Kitty on her flank at almost the exact placement as a cutie mark. Mm. Ah. There's a euro on there as well, just for everyone yes. in Europe. <laughs> um, international audiences. I swear it looks like Ducky Momo from Phineas and Ferb is in Cloud Cuckoo Land. Oh. The giant yellow duck bird thing, it looks like Ducky Momo, which is a very you know, obscure reference to Phineas and Ferb. And all of these uh, animated shows have one thing in common, which is rabidly loyal fan communities. Even if these were just little nods or, uh, or actual overt references, having these guys on side and sort of drawing them in certainly isn't going to hurt your film. I adore the secret knock. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Council of Cuckoo Land uh, section is basically the Council of Elrond, but again, turned on its head. I especially love the fact that... Um, uh, Emmett starts giving a Jeff Winger-style speech, but there was no actual end to it. He's just sort of like, uh, uh, there was, you know, he's just sort of giving an account of, of everything, but he doesn't have that ability to, to come up with a rousing. But we are going to move forwards thing, because that would make him somebody. That would make him at least capable of Jeff Winger-style speeches, even if his heart wasn't in it. Yeah, you can't get the turnaround to the inspiring part. It's just a long stretch of things may be bad. In fact, mm. they may be terrible. In fact, I don't even know if they've ever been worse than this. And then it just <laughs> kind of cuts off. Do you notice the one person who was smiling the whole way through that and totally believes in him? It was Benny. On the topic of the team coming together, so we have Benny and Metalbeard and all the others, Emmett is the only one who's really out of place. He'd be the only one that is the man upstairs minifig. Yeah. So is this kind of Finn wanting to play with his father's toys, but trying to not to get in trouble with it? So he's just taken this one obscure construction worker that will probably never be missed. That's a fine point. And played it with his own toys. Because none of the others fit any of uh, the man upstairs sets. Except the spacemen. There's several spacemen around there. But Benny could also, that could have also been, hey, this is my first set or one of my first sets I'm passing along to my son not using I, this anymore so that, that was kind of something I noticed is that could just have easily been him passing along the first yeah. Benny you know 
So him wanting more of his father's toys to play with because he idealizes his father is something that comes up later. I think also you've got the fact that, uh, I mean, we've mentioned before all the Cloud Cuckoo Land bits of Lego are in the box of stuff that Finn is supposed to play with but doesn't really want to. Um, it kind of represents this very sugar-coated land of naivety and rainbows, um, which is kind of... A lot of people tend to assume that this is what kids want, or at least that this is what they'll be satisfied by, a world where they can live on sweets and never be told what to do and and never be sent to bed and nobody's there to give them any guidance or parameters at all. But Finn has rejected this. He does actually want to play with his dad's more uh, purposeful Lego. It's just that he wants to be able to do his own thing with it. I'm looking at uh, set um, 70816, which is Benny's spaceship, decried as a hodgepodge by the man upstairs. It's really good. If Finn made this himself, it's on a level with the uh, the classic sort of late 80s uh, Lego space stuff. It's well, if his dad detailed. keeps if his dad keeps the boxes, which is very likely, considering how um, how much of a, a collector rather than a player he is, that he would have looked at the images and, and tried to at least replicate something like it. Try to match the style of it, yeah. And he'd, he'd assume that the Benny character that he was playing with would want would want one of these spaceships and would want to be able to fly something like he did, you know, 25-odd years ago. And, of course, we get to meet Metalbeard here, played by Nick Offerman. And I know it's going to be really hard. Really hard?! Wiping ye bum with a hook for a hand is really hard. This be impossible! The last time we tried to storm Lord Business's office, we used every plan we could conceive. The result was a massacre too terrible to speak of. Who are you? The name be Metalbeard, and I'll tell you me tale of woe. Oh, great. Here we go again. I arrived at the foot of the tower with me hardy master builder crew. Only to find the craggle was all the way up on the infinitieth floor, guarded by a robot army and security measures of every kind imaginable. Lasers. Sharks. Laser sharks. Overbearing assistance. And strange, dangerous relics that entrap, snap, and zap. And there be a mysterious room called the Think Tank. I barely made it out of that room with just me head. And organs. Okay. I had to replace every part of my once strapping, virile pirate body with this useless hunk of garbage you see before ye. So if ye think it be a good idea to return to that forsaken place special, what idea have ye that be better than the ideas of 100 of our fallen master builder brothers? Well, uh, well, technically I'm not exactly a master builder yet. What? The uh, lead designer and art director, um, Mike Fuller, of uh, of the actual Lego group them, themselves, he was this guy was basically in, in charge of, of designing all the main models that, uh, for the uh, the the show, all of the stuff that had to be created from scratch rather than something that already pre existed. Metalbeard himself is a work of of Lego genius. If you actually look, he's got all of these little details, all of these little bits that sum up a steampunk pirate 
all in one go without any of it being wasted, without any of it being not something which is just uh, just a wonderful statement on who Metal Beard is. I I want Metal Beard so badly. It was interesting listening to the commentary that Metal Beard was originally intended to be Lucy's boyfriend. Yeah. This is probably before they got their permission to really use Batman this much. Yeah, so I thought that could have made an interesting change to that dynamic, because obviously we have Batman, the kind of dark and brooding, and then Metal Beard, who's kind of the same, and the fact that he's got this kind of depression going on from being defeated and losing everything, but also... He, you know, that turnaround as he starts to believe in Emmett and the others. Yeah. And he considers himself to be a monster, but any child or many adults who looked at him would just go, that is just a work of genius and awesome. Also, our little cameo appearances of Superman and the Green Lantern. It's played by... Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill of 21 Jump Street. Indeed. Almost... Yeah, all totally unscripted. They basically just uh, said to uh, uh, to jo- Jonah Hill to be just super annoying. I actually kind of like this, te- like the this dynamic of Superman Green Lantern a bit. I don't know mm. if it's actually representative of anything of their actual characters at all, but. I find it really entertaining. Well, it's not. I took it to be kind of a, a commentary on the fact that the the Green Lantern movie, when held up against the success of the Superman movies over the years, even though they have gone up and down, is it's just so embarrassing and so much of a kind of something that Warner Brothers want to sweep under the rug. So it's almost like Warner Brothers are Superman. He's their flagship character and Green Lantern's there messing everything up. When pushing forward with this new series, there's not even talk of another Green Lantern film yet. This might date because there might suddenly be an announcement for it. But it's almost like you would leave that side of the DC universe completely unspoken of just because the last movie sucked so badly. You can't be bothered just to do a good Green Lantern film. <laughs> after several, after a fantastic CGI series too. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> All the master builders you've captured over the years, you brought them here. You're a very perceptive person, Superman. They come up with all the instructions for everything in the universe. Robots! No! No! Can't get much worse than this. Uh, hello, neighbor. Oh, no. It's Green Lantern. Oh, my gosh. We're roommates. How crazy is that? Does anyone have some kryptonite? Um, but yeah, with Superman there and Wonder Woman, Batman and Green Lantern and the Flash is there for a few moments as well. Um, by the way, Green Lantern's never actually been released as a Lego figure in the mainstream. He was released as a San Diego Comic Con exclusive and is thus it commands an incredible price on eBay. But I'm assuming that's going to change after the DC movies start coming out. Uh, and same with the, uh, I don't even think the Flash was ever made. Um, but yeah, this, this whole thing, uh, kind of lampoons the, uh, the Avengers and, and that kind of, you know, big superhero get together. Cause these guys turn up and none of them really have a significant role apart from Batman, who's in everything. And uh, to, again, this is almost like a commentary on the fact that all other DC movies are going to have to limp along with Batman cameos in a kind of, come and see this one, folks. Batman's in it. Way. Prove me wrong, Warner Brothers. Prove me wrong. Allow these guys to fly on their own merits without the goddamn bat. Anywho, at the Middle Zealand moment, uh, when you uh, sort of flash through, there's a little torture room moment, which I don't know how they managed to get it through. Uh, it's still near you, but uh, it's there's a bucket full of severed heads in there. <laughs> 
Also, I'm going to go ahead and guess that the guy covered in leeches is not an official Lego figure. Yet, we can. I was just going to say, he may not have been before. Also, when they barrel through there in the new Batwing turned into a Batmobile, this was great. And this was one of those blink and you'll miss it moments. Um, It turns around and and the camera sort of races along with it and then it, it runs away from the camera as studs, brown studs fly out of the ground and splatter against the camera and turn into droplets of sort of clear blue studs as they sort of stay on the screen like it's just splashed an actual camera. Yeah, I thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> and the uh, number plate, did anyone catch it? It's back to debone. Also, uh, when they, uh, just as they go up the rainbow, there's a dragon helping to roast a pig. Also, as they're going into the meeting in Cloud Cuckoo Land, there is a dinosaur dancing with two lightsaber glow sticks. As they pass the Statue of Liberty, who is also represented as an actual model at the uh, far end of the um, big town set, uh, there's Dracula eating a croissant offered by a chef with a bushy moustache who shouldn't be in Cloud Cuckoo Land because they're not allowed bushy moustaches, and not liking it. So Batman gets briefly accosted by a clown, doesn't he? And he says, he does. I hate, he says, I hate this place. Yeah. <laughs> He's not a fan of um, clowns, it's Batman. Unikitty points out that there's no consistency. I think this all relates back to the thing you mentioned, Sharon, about Finn rejecting this side of things and almost like trying to make it do his best with Cloud Cuckoo Land, but then destroying it. Mm, yeah. Almost like he's enacting his own father's wishes for, for this kind of stuff to be, uh, you know, laid, just tossed away. Well, it's not very reassuring, is it? If you're, if the toys that you're given to play with are the ones that it's been made patently obvious are not desired and are not worth anything. Also, if you want to take every single character here as a facet of uh, Finn, Unikitty's pushing down all of her bad, unhappy and angry thoughts to the point where, you know, she's got this Hulk-like creature inside her that's just threatened to get out as soon as she uh, unleashes them. That says a lot about Finn as well. Well, as does all the the signs in Bricksburg that say, smile and feeling blue, try smiling, which is like the most common unsolicited and useless advice that is given to people who have depression or anxiety or Mm. genuine mental health issues that you cannot fix by plastering on a fake grin and going out into the world. Anyone notice who Wonder Woman was played by? Was that Kobe Smulders, wasn't it? It was indeed Kobe Smulders, who, if Joss Whedon had directed Wonder Woman, may have played Wonder Woman. The Dumbledore gag. This is the only bit in the film. It is funny, but I feel like it's going to stick. You know how, like, the Matt Damon thing stuck for years? So now, even now, when you say Matt Damon, someone in the room might mutter, Matt Damon! And, you know, it's no fault of his, and it has absolutely no bearing on who Matt Damon is at all. But uh, now when people are trying to be very, very serious about Harry Potter and talk about something that may be quite uh, touching regarding Dumbledore, someone's going to go, Dumbledore! And it doesn't make enough sense to really make that worth it. To me. <laughs> but obviously it tickled stick. a few of us. Uh, the bit where... Um, Vitruvius says, okay, you got to write all that down because I'm not going to remember any of it, but here we go. Uh, that was during one of his voiceover sessions and he was actually saying that to Lord Miller. So they just kind of, they used that. There's also a bit in the uh, outtakes where he's, he's saying, I got a lot of pages that aren't mine. That's, again, just actually something that happened in it. 
those are some of my favorite reads of his, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Even though they're just throwaway and mostly used in promotional material. But yeah. Can you read the line? You are the special. What am I saying? All you have to say is, you are the special. I got a lot of loose pages here that yeah, don't belong sorry. to me. It's just, you are the special. All right, you got to write all that down because I'm not going to remember any of it, but here we go. <laughs> also, when Metal Beard talks about his infiltration, you get to see laser shots, which is something I'm not sure has been replicated before, but was obviously referenced in uh, uh, Austin Powers 1. International Man of Mystery, and has become kind of a, a meme with sort of sharks with freaking laser beams attached to their heads. You know, I have one simple request, and that is to have sharks with freaking laser beams attached to their heads. I love how they occasionally do these little cutaways to a very distant, straight, flat shot, cheap looking version of what they're, what they've been filming and showing in big, epic, the, like, Bayhem level carnage just as a extra little gag it makes it feel even more like it's just a small budget stop motion film like the the, the occasional like okay uh metal beard is gonna drive away so his little boat drops out of the clouds and just gonna kind of flows like <laughs> drives away like it and they only do it occasionally but it, it, uh, it always makes for a really funny gag and makes it feel again like this sort of that it reminds you of that low budget stop motion film thing that they're kind of doing but in a really big budget way yeah it's uh it also reminds me that they don't make bigotures anymore this is the closest you're gonna get you know the when we were talking about the lord of the rings and they don't they haven't really done that for the hobbit films now they don't make a giant minas tirith that's to scale they just do it with cg um so yeah this is i suppose it it, it you know they could just have made an, a, a tower of infinite size i love the fact that it's on the infinite floor that's great. But, uh, but yeah, they, they made a small one just to kind of give you a sense of cinematic scale, even if it's, 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 it's purposefully ridiculously small, especially when like the top floor just gets up and goes. And of course it cuts straight from that to the giant independent style shot, independent state style shot of it. Yeah. I don't know if there's anyone big Star Wars fan in here. Does, do you, does anyone know what world devastators are? I do. Yeah. That's what these things reminded me of. I can completely see that. I can't believe I never drew that parallel. Yeah. Speaking of Star Wars, the sudden turn up of the Millennium Falcon, and of course, Harrison Ford did not do voiceover duties, but Billy Dee Williams and Anthony Daniels, who are always game for a laugh, absolutely did. And it's a great, fun, awesome moment, which, uh, again, is, is kind of like alien to the average um, person watching who doesn't watch Robot Chicken and stuff. But for me, it's like, aha, business as usual. Fantastic. I love this. I'm totally on the level at this stage. Got a good reaction in the cinema when I, when I got to that bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Smart of them to keep that a secret. And remember, the hairy one's a guy too. <laughs> There's a, a discarded line at that point was, uh, you, ha- you have to understand my, uh, my crippling addiction to partying with strangers. Yeah, but according to your precious instructions, this ship needs a hyperdrive. We don't have that part. Maybe we could find one. What do you think? A spaceship is just going to appear out of the blue. Are you kidding me? The same bit. Chewie! We're supposed to be halfway to Naboo for a sweet party right now. This hyperdrive keeps malfunctioning, taking us to loser systems like this. Captain Solo, we must go. You know how perturbed I get if we are not punctual. The droid's right. Let's roll. Now hold on, hey? 
this might be the right galaxy after all, because I see a heavenly body. Oh, whoa, I have a boyfriend, and it is super serious, right, babe? Of course it's serious. Yeah. Got room for just one dude? Whoa, babe. If he's a cool dude like you. You're trying to bail on us. I'm not trying to bail. You asked him if you could go with them on their party ship. That thing is filled with bon vivants. You speak French now? Babe, look, if this relationship is ever going to work between us... I need to feel free to party with a bunch of strangers whenever I feel like it. What? Babe! I will text you. Where'd you get that sweet space cape, brother? Babe? The infiltration and releasing the craggle. This is the point where, I mean, I loved the Mark Mothersborough score. I've always loved Mark Mothersborough. He's uh, done a lot of Wes Anderson scores before. But this is my favorite bit of music in the whole thing, even in including everything is awesome. That did it, did it, don't do bit it's just so yeah. peppy and upbeat and following the destruction of cloud cocoon you, you need something like this to bring them back and um it's you know everyone loves a whole sort of here's the plan and this is what we're going to do moment but it's just that it gets this giddy energy back so ably at this stage it's at this point that i think we should maybe mention phil lord and chris miller and their creative history and tendencies mm-hmm because I think it, like, everything that happens around this point between the couch, uh, the double-decker couch saving the day, and it being the kind of the idea that they then build this entire heist out, out of and around. Like, because these guys, their history of directors seems to be, they, they're developing a reputation for spinning terrible-sounding concepts into gold. Yeah. Uh, to quote uh, Metalbeard, ideas so dumb and bad they couldn't possibly be useful. <laughs> but these guys are like masters at subverting expectation. Like the first thing they're directing is an MTV TV show called Clone High that is about lots of historical great figures as young kids going to high school together, which sounds like the dumbest thing in the world, but is actually really funny and actually really like heartwarming. Like really captures a lot of like, high school problems and relationships and stuff. Yeah. And then cloudy with a chance of meatballs, just a story about food raining from the sky and ah, how weird, which I know you don't like it as much as I do, but I still think is you must still admit is way better than it seems like it should be just as a concept and an idea. I will admit that. Okay. <laughs> also, I mean, 21 Jumps, a remake of 21 Jump Street and sequel 22 Jump Street, both of which, as I hear it, are way better than they seem like they should be. Yeah. I did like 21 Jump Street. I haven't seen 22 so, yet, but we'll like to. The, the additional level I talked about of, that this movie addresses and speaks to in a lot of metaphor about just uh, creativity and collaboration and the business of it is one of my favorite things about this because, like, Emmett's plan for breaking into President Business's office tower is a perfect analog, and I'm not the first person to say this, but is a perfect analog for how Lord and Miller work within the Hollywood system to release their weird, wonderful little movies. They sneak in looking like a truck. Yeah, they are master builders who follow the instructions. They take the original, creative, weird little thing that they want to make, and they conceal it in the guise of the safest, blandest, most instruction-followy thing possible. Like, so many people will have looked at 
the Lego movie or trailers for it and saw it, oh, it's just a big toy commercial. Mm. That is exactly what they are dressing it up as. But they're making it that safe, bland, instruction follow idea so that the they, the awesome, clever thing they actually want to make will go unnoticed. They're basically pulling artistic heist with every movie they make. <laughs> To get the investments for the uh, the movies that they think are going to make a billion dollars. Sharon, is yeah. this sounding like our favourite film of last year? Big fighting robots. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. Carry on, Dad. That's kind of how. I mean, because that's kind of how you have to work to be a great artistic, like, vision and voice in the big, huge budget Hollywood scene. You have to basically be able to pitch your idea as something that will sound good to the business people and you have to be able to work with them and you have to be someone who will that these business people when they talk to you they get the sense that you're listening to them and you're taking their notes and you're applying them and you're fighting them yeah that you're someone who will listen and be controlled so to speak and so you try to play that role while also still getting through what you're wanting to make and creating this original thing that's the thing where you set out with such good intentions but then it turns to shit but a lot of our best creative guys in the field who make it seem so effortless are the guys who really know how to work that field and work that scene and walk that tightrope. And I just love all the little metaphors in this movie to do with that sort of creativity within the within the business thing. Like, like the fact that the key to Lord Business's homogenized building success is his think tank, which is a room where all of the world's most creative individual minds are crammed together and forced to dream of the most generic, safe, bland work possible. Yeah. And even at the fact that at the end, like at the end, Emmett is speaking to the man with all the power, making a plea for humanity to the executive and to the businessman, that the one who could have the greatest influence in the world if he only used that position for good. Yeah. That is, that is the thing that I... There's a lot that I love about this movie, but that's the aspect of this movie that I absolutely love most. Go where we can't be found. Maybe we could go underwater. What if we went underwater? Great idea, babe. Thank you, Batman. Your ideas are the best. But hey, I just said that. We could build a submarine. A bat submarine patent pending. With the rainbows. And dream catchers in case we take a nap. Like an underwater spaceship. But you can't build all of them at once. Ready? Break. Break. Okay. These are the colors I need. Blue raspberry and sour apple. If anybody has black parts, I need them, okay? I only work in black. And sometimes very, very dark gray. Use the yellow brick. You guys, can I help? No, it has to be this way. No, I need that. Where is he? Anyone know what this is and do you need it? I think we can use wings, rocket booster. Get your retro space stuff out of my area. You guys, hey, just tell me exactly what to do and how to do it. Emmett, don't worry about what the others are doing. You must embrace what is special about you. Okay, anyone got 325 pounds and 49 pence? That's how much the sea cow is going to set me back. <laughs> See what I mean about, you know, if, if you really, really want Vitruvius and Benny, that's the price you're going to have to pay. I've got to say, even for most Lego sets, if they would just drop the price like even 25% on your average Lego set, I would buy so many rather than barely any at all. Yeah. I, I've, I've actually read various articles on uh, how uh, the, the Lego sets have uh, actually gone down a little in terms of how many bricks you get, uh, even in, including and adjusting for inflation since when we were kids. Um, so it's not even like we're paying extra now because of all the licenses. They have just simply become more complex, but they are ball-bustingly expensive still. Um, but, you know, 
like oh, me and Glenn both bought Cloud Cuckoo Land. That's a fun, silly, inane ice cream of a uh, base thing just to get hold of Unikitty and Emmett and Wildstyle. I bought it too. For just for Unikitty. Yeah. You get seasick Unikitty if you buy the sea cow. And you get the double couch and metal beard and Vitruvius and Benny. It's all there. I do it's love so- the fact <laughs> Go, ahead. Go for it. I do love the fact that Spaceship Unikitty comes in uh with Spaceship Spaceship Spaceship. <laughs> There's five Unikitties, uh so we've got Spaceship, Sick, Regular Unikitty, uh, can anyone name the other two? Business Kitty. Business, business, business. Numbers. Is this working? Yes. Yes! And Angry Kitty. And of course, yeah, Angry Kitty. Well done. Unikitty in the boardroom going, business, 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 numbers. Is this working? That is Okay, that's more than milk. That is who they are. (laughs) They're the guys who can go into the boardroom, say, business, 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 numbers, make the the guys at the table happy, and then go make the thing they want. Totally. I love that. And that's my favorite little gag bit in the entire movie too I think it's meta inside meta does yeah. that kind but, of it, it sort of emphasizes that idea of retaining the the childhood um uh, what's the word I'm looking for here the the childhood spirit of creation but having to acknowledge the fact that you can't keep that alive by being naive and thinking that people will just let you do your own thing yeah great thing about this movie is that you can if in buying the action figures or toys you are actually buying legos of them that you can build at the same time and i, well, I know there's something kind of you conceptually just committed a weird. cardinal sin dan what did i say <laughs> legos i was wondering when we were going to get to that <laughs> nice i was wondering not my term if you're in england i don't know about america is oh, it's in america Lego. too i, 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 I have lots always of said it wrong i have lots of arguments with people about it <laughs> see you 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 wrecked it dan we were just doing it when we wrecked it. Uh, I, I know I say it wrong, but I have always done so, and so it's one that I just admit to but have not stopped. Oh, we're going to allow this. There is something conceptually weird about going and going out and buying a bunch of Lego sets to follow the instructions on to build these original creations that all the master builders make of their own inventiveness, especially in a movie that does celebrate the just going off script and building your own thing but that said i still totally want all of these sets but the beauty of them surely would be that once you've got all the sets you can then combine them to make whatever you want to make absolutely does anyone know this the the things like the ice cream machine and the uh, trash chomper and the castle cavalry do they give you the instructions to make both or are you supposed to go off book to actually make the things you're not supposed to get the instructions for both there you go how ironic (laughs) <laughs> we're going to just threw you in the deep end and it's like right here's a picture of it make it or make something else well that's what they used to do with the older sets it's like here's something else you can make with these pieces but it would never show you how to do it I remember that from my older sets the tech oh, yeah. they'd show you how to make two things as I recall on the uh, on the whole Can anyone tell me the five rules of piracy? One is never place your rear end on a pirate's face. Uh, There was also never put ye hand in a clam's mouth. Uh, Never wear a dress on a Tuesday. 
always abandon a lost cause, which of course he followed when they were in Cloud Cuckoo Land, and never release a Kraken. I adore Metal Beard. Uh, he's played by, um, do, 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 Nick, Nick Offerman, Offerman. Yeah. from, um, uh, Parks and Recreation, who uh, creeps up on you as, you know, this unassuming mustachioed chap who turns out to be Garfield, just the funniest goddamn guy on the planet. Oh, uh, also they, they managed at this point to uh, reduce the hero's journey to a single sentence that Emmett blurts out. Anyone remember it? It's, I have to place the thing on the other thing and save the universe. There aren't many hero's journeys that don't involve doing that in some way. you got to place the ring on a volcano and save the universe. you got to place a photon torpedo on an exhaust port and save the universe. you got to place the idea in the mind of the deus ex machina that humans and machines can live together in harmony and save the universe. I did notice at one point when uh, Emmett's um, lecturing Batman, he angrily retorts, Don't worry, Dad, I read the dumb instructions. Stop yelling at me. Which seems like the sort of thing maybe Finn might have said at some point. Or thought, even if he didn't say it. Ah, true. And uh, anyone notice how uh, President Business killed Vitruvius? With a penny. Indeed. He kills him with money. But before that, we actually get a lovely uh, moment between Emmett and uh, Lucy. And it kind of takes away all of their... um, restrictions they're placing on themselves by trying to be someone they're not with uh, tinfoil. I, w- I do wonder if uh, at some point in the future when AI develops and um, machines become part of uh, the part of the sharing dominant species harmony on the planet, whether this kind of thing will be looked back on and with shaking heads and damaged mainframes of, as just being robot face. But, um, <laughs> but you know, yeah, the, the uh, it's a very heartfelt moment. It's it's held in sharp relief by the fact that uh, Batman turns up and says, says, you two dummies, just completely oblivious to it. You kind of get the idea that he speaks to Lucy like that all the time and she just kind of brushes it off. He doesn't know she's called Lucy as well. Yeah, that's a big thing. Based off the discussion about the plan, he does she know that he's Bruce Wayne or does she just know him as Batman? From the way she rolled her eyes when he was going on about, oh, Bruce Wayne, who's that? Seems like a cool customer. <laughs> I, I think she knows. <laughs> Seems like a cool guy. It's almost like everyone in the room knows that one. Like it's. Uh... I told you he'd come. Wait. I could die. At least tell me your name. It's not who I am underneath, but what I do. No. Oh my god, you totally are, Bruce. What? No way. Okay, well that whole what I do that defines me thing, I said that to Bruce three days ago and told no one else, so that would mean you're Bruce. You're being crazy. How could I be Bruce Wayne? See, I didn't even say Wayne. I, I just said Bruce. Oh, I saw Bruce Wayne at the bank. And he told me about your conversation. Oh, you guys hang out? Yeah. Bruce Wayne is kind of the coolest. Oh, really? You should go out with him. He's free Friday. Mr. Doss, thank God you're safe. Commissioner, you're not going to believe this. What? Bruce Wayne is Batman? What? Come on. Wait, you knew that? It's like super obvious. Just 
disappears for a bunch of years, comes back. He's in incredible shape. Well, that totally makes sense because one time when we were kids, I saw him get thrashed by bats. Oh, get this. I was just driving in the Batmobile, like, tank thing. Yeah. I look in the glove box, and it's registered to Bruce Wayne. <laughs> hey, it's baloney. Batman gave me a Periscope the other night, and it said Wayne Enterprises on it. <laughs> what, Hello? You, what is that? Hello? Oh, this will clear things up. There's Bruce Wayne just behind you. Turn, and let's put this paranoia to rest. Just turn around. Okay. Oh, don't see him. Guess we'll turn back around. Don't turn around. Wait, wait, wait. Let me know. Don't turn. Okay, now you can. Hi, Rachel, Commissioner Gordon. I was just water skiing from a hovercraft, you know, doing reckless billionaire type stuff like I do. Tell your eye makeup on. Hmm? No, this, I was, I was a hit. In the face. These are black eyes. I've been fighting crime. No, not that. Irregardless. And when Emmett is confronted with what Vitruvius has uh, revealed was the lie of the one, the uh, the prophecy, it's exactly the same as what Neo is confronted with. <laughs> you see, Emmett, a corrupted spirit is no match for the purity of imagination. <laughs> Vitruvius! No! Vitruvius! My sweet Emmett, come closer. You must know something about the prophecy. I know, I'm doing my best, but I, I don't, I don't... The prophecy. I made it up. What? I made it up. It's not true. But that means I'm just... I'm not the special. You must listen. What I'm about to tell you will change the course of history. It's, it's not so much... Neo's not told there is no one, but he is basically put in a situation where he has to choose to be the one. In the same way as Emmett has to choose at this stage. I was going to say, because if you listen to what she says, she never actually says to him, you are not the one. She asks him mm. if he feels like the one. He responds negatively and she says, sorry, sorry kid, kid, looks like you're waiting for something. Yes. Your next life, perhaps. Who knows? God, I love Gloria Foster. Which, again, kind of comes back to this idea of you can't be the one unless you know you are or believe you are or think you are. Because this isn't something that you can do um, unconsciously. It requires the conscious choice. Yeah. I really love that subversion of the standard hero's journey, particularly the destiny angle that gets played up so often. Mm. The fact that at the end of it, there is not a special necessarily at all. There is the capacity to be the special within just about any average person. Yeah. And they really only need someone to tell them they can be and believe in them enough to believe in themselves to actually realize that potential. Again, this comes back to what we were discussing on the Pacific Rim podcast about the, the collective being now more important than the one about the, the everybody pulling together being far more inspiring than one person saving us all. Well, Benny sort of says, if only there were more people like him and mm. then, they sort of turn around and realize, well, maybe everybody's like that. And that's what bothered me so much about Man of Steel. 
the suggestion in the trailers was he will show them the way he will he will help them accomplish wonders what wonders were accomplished in man of steel i know obviously it's just the beginning step at this stage but it did all, all kind of seem like superman was the alien who was here to destroy their city accidentally you are the master builder a special one that will save the realm the greatest, most interesting, most important person of all time. Hey, Planty, what do you want to do this morning? Watch TV? Me too! The prophecy chose you, Emmett. Oh, my G-O-S-H. Are you ready, my son? This rebellion ends now. Can you feel me? I can feel you. What?! I don't think he's ever had an original thought. I want to go home! This is not what I meant! The only thing anyone needs to be special is to believe that you can be. Great. I think I got it. But just in case, tell me the whole thing again. I wasn't listening. You ruined it. Good job. The Lego Movie starts February 7th. Rated VG. So, yeah, the idea that there's this, this is one incredible special person, especially if they have special blood, uh, is now getting tedious, laughable, and needs to be subverted quite often to to make it flow as a story at all. Is that because we have now humanized our gods to the point where they don't work as gods anymore? Or just that we don't... They do work as gods, but it's so much more engaging if they're relatable. Look at Immortals, for example. Do you remember that that crappy 300-type film? It has a Justice League in it, but because they're all these lofty gods who you never really get to know, totally dis- disconnected from the human race. Did we see that? Yep, it was rubbish. I don't remember it. <laughs> oh, hang on. No, I'm thinking of Clash of the Titans. Yep, well, Luke Evans was in both of them. It's just this glut of crappy 300-style films. Anyway, moving on. One minute, you're the most special person in the universe. The next, you're nobody. This, again, relates back to um, the the feeling that uh, uh, Emmett felt way back then. This is the point where he drops. This is this descent into the underworld and the pushing through. This is his uh, metaphorical death as well, the thing he has to come back from. I really need to sit down and read Joseph Campbell. It's um, not because it's something to be followed, but as you said, Dan, it's, it can be a very useful tool to understanding what we respond to. Yeah. You're not going to say no? Build away, whatever your name is. All units attack that spaceship. Special! Where'd he go? It, it, they bust into the studio of the Where Are My Pants, which we haven't mentioned yet. I don't know why I find that hilarious. It's it's done three times in the film. Um, it, possibly just because on the third time, it's Here Are Your Pants, series is over. That it's, it's such a splendid lampooning of crummy TV that 
it's it's kind of in, oddly endearing. Cuts to, I want to broadcast to the universe. And Benny goes to a computer and presses a few buttons and then it happens. And he, he says, uh, 1980s something technology. Yeah, I can do that. Because that's the sort of thing that happened in the 80s and the 90s before people got savvy to that's not how computers or cameras or broadcasting worked. You can't force a feed onto every com- every TV in the world all simultaneously, including like giant public screens, which also, by the way, have sound attached. Um, and yet here it, of course, absolutely works because they're referencing that. I also expected it was a bit of a gag about how outdated some of the equipment used for TV broadcasting probably is. Yeah. And it's also a nice parallel from the gag only minutes before with the lowering the shield section during the the plan. Yeah, modern technology is not really Benny's thing. There's a comment that uh, President Business makes just before... Emmett gets left to make his fateful decision as well about not being a special little snowflake, yeah. which while that's obviously very revealing about Finn's dad's own complexes and, and why he is, why he has this internalized frustration that he's taking out on Finn to an extent, um, that particular phrase I've seen it used over and over again as basically a stick to beat people with if they dare to think they should be allowed to just be themselves and get on with their own stuff. Anybody who, who, you know, wants to be a bit different or not, not even in a big attention grabbing way, just in a, can you please stop picking on me and just let me do my own thing and stop being such a special little snowflake gets thrown at them. Um, but it, that particular phrase made me think of Fight Club uh, when um, Tyler says you are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. But another thing that kind of parallels in this with Fight Club is the idea that our fathers are our models for God. And obviously Finn's father being the man upstairs, which is a phrase that is often used for God. I think what it, it made me think of was the the idea of what the flaw in a generation's fathers and and, um, paternal figures causes them to become like themselves. So in Fight Club, the issue was fathers who bail and and don't provide a a backbone and a a space of responsibility. The issue with uh, the man upstairs seems to be that he's tried so hard to eliminate his own dreams in the name of responsibility that it would be impossible for him to do anything without communicating to his children that having that control and demonstrating it by everything being perfect is more important than any other quality. And it's the things that you don't say to your children that come across with the most resonance. It's the things that you do and they see you doing and then they try to replicate and then it's how how the parents react to what the child is trying to do. So subconsciously, if he's had any time he's Finn has tried to do anything following the instructions and, and going with the rules, he's been praised for it. That reinforces the idea that this is the way to go, that this is the way to do things.
the real world sequence feels like the most gutsy move for them to have taken but this could have fallen flat yes so easily in the wrong hands this it almost seems like the sort of thing a filmmaker would do on a dare and it seems like the sort of thing that executives would go no no yeah i'm sure they had to work really hard to make to pitch that direction yeah they asked them on the commentary if there was resistance, and they sort of just laugh. <laughs> yes, there was some. I suppose they had to just, like, film the damn thing and then show it and say, look, this is what we have planned. Because it did, it's not extremely expensive for them to do it. They could film it in an afternoon. Well, apart from building the set, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, that's going to take more than an afternoon. It didn't work for everybody. There are a number of people, even those who sort of enjoyed the film who have said that they felt the last part overreached a little bit I don't agree with them but again it's it's just evidence of taking those risks that if you haven't put your pitch forward extremely well no studio is going to let you get away with yeah yeah, it feels really daring simply because the standards are so low to actually suggest the, the repurposing and the going off instructions and the doing your own thing. It's, it's so obvious when you think about it about Lego because that's kind of what it's for before it became about, you know, like keeping these things as, as they are and like extremely expensive kits that had to be resold with every single part intact and there on eBay. It was about making something of your own out of, you know, what you had available to you. It was kind of bringing you back to that phase before it suddenly became all about the money. So maybe the tail end of your youth before you actually had to start putting your own finances into it. But when your, uh, in, in your creative juices were at their most potent. So I, I kind of like the exchange that he has. With, with Finn, where they're talking about saying, it's, it's a toy, we bought it at the toy store. And he's saying, well, no, not, not the way I use it. <laughs> this is a scale model. And all of these uh, little um, uh, vignettes of uh, uh, various like uh, Lego models being created around the world were actually sent in by fans of uh, the, the, the Lego club. Uh, and uh, the, clearly the ones that were selected were the ones that were the most in line with their um, their animation style and their ethic. And uh, if you actually watch them on the Blu-ray, some of them are really kind of um, uh, you know, inspiring little um, uh, bits. And it's kind of like they're the small-scale version of what this ended up being. And they've got the same heart. Yeah, the little shorts on the competition stuff on the DVDs, they are all quite fun. Yeah. I suppose there's something in the idea of toys forced to be adult entertainment as well in here. It's almost like these Lego toys are being asked to dance and to be something they're not, really, uh, for, for somebody, uh, you know, trying to exert absolute control. Some toy lines, they have this, this acceptance now that they have an adult collector's market in there. Mm. The Transformers toys particularly have that now. There's like a whole range of toys that go from very, ones that are very easy to transform. They're still obviously toys, up to ones that are clearly not meant to be played with at all. I think there's also an element of kids' movies and kids' entertainment that is deeper than that and has more to it than that. 
but is misinterpreted that if you can see other depth in children's entertainment, that somehow stops it being children's entertainment. When in actual fact, surely that depth and those life lessons and those universal themes are exactly the things that you want to put in front of your children. The irony in uh, him exerting the uh, supreme control that he actually um, attempts here is in gluing everything. He even glues the wheels of a truck to the road. If you glue down a wheel, you make it redundant for its single intended purpose. He talks about his model being almost complete, like it's going to be done, and when he glues it in place, then it will be done. He's trying to create a, a closed system that cannot and does not exist within nature, that will not allow for evolution of any kind, technological, organic, anything, and exerting such rigid control, the only thing that can possibly happen is entropy followed by destruction, because it can't grow. But as I said earlier, um, Emmett actually reaches out to uh, Big Business, or, or I say Emmett does. Um, Emmett's voicing what Finn's saying. It's charming to see the reverence this boy has, because he should, by all rights at this point, be irate with his father. But there's no anger there. In fact, it's it's obvious and apparent how much fear and anxiety and worry uh, the man upstairs has become an embodiment of in his child's mind that, that that's the core of the movie really it is the man upstairs realizing what he's become to his child and deciding to change that i mean finn does see him as this kind of great master builder yeah all of this town stuff his father built so yeah, most of that would not have been with instructions. You don't get instructions for buildings anywhere near as big as that. Yeah. So, you know, his father is creative, created all of that stuff, and Finn looks up to that. But he's also angry and scary and controlling. And it's I'm, almost like he's saying, look, just consider some level of compromise where you can build these things, but just allow for a little bit of leeway, a little bit of um, artistry, a little bit of uh, external input. But he doesn't have he, the negotiation skills yet to be able to say that. Yeah. When he does see the things that Finn's built, he actually sort of you know, has some real admiration for what Finn's actually constructed. He yeah. says, did you build all these things? And he sort of sees that there's real uh, skill in his own son, and he's missed that. Yeah, you can see that moment in his eyes when he realizes that these aren't just conglomerations of bricks that his son's thrown together. That This is a model. It's very detailed. It's where he sees the off-limits and the uh, do-not-touch sign and uh, hands-off, and he just sees what an incredibly sectional environment he's made and how incredibly segregated everything is. And then he sees himself as the bad guy. Uh, again, uh, Will Farrell, I've never really liked that much as an actor. He manages to be incredibly over the top as president of business and incredibly understated as the man. He has that sort of, he has the line where he says, um, if the construction worker could talk to the, the businessman, what would he say? Yeah. Rather than what you to me, because it gives Finn a chance to frame it. Again, that's child psychology. It's, uh, it's, it's, it, it, for a change, he's not trying to be manipulative, but it is actually remarkably subtle and emotionally sensitive for him to actually ask in that way. I think people get kind of too uh, caught up in whether they're parents yet or not and go, well, I'm not a parent, so this didn't really appeal to me. But all of us 
had parents or parental figures in our lives unless we were in a situation where we had no one to look up to. And I don't think you can really get to adulthood without having someone that you're really close to. And there's, there's got to have been someone in your life that you clashed with or bonded with or both. And if you were lucky enough to be able to create something with someone, this surely must have touched people on many, many uh, different levels. I mean, there's a reason this scene gets to people. This the, the intercutting of when President Business slowly walks across towards Emmett from the left to the right with his enormous boots, stilt boots, getting lower, and then it cuts to uh, the man upstairs w- walking and embracing his son. That's a wonderful piece of cinema. They keep the sound effect of the clunking boots as well. Yeah. When it cuts back to the real world scene, it's still making the same noise that President Business right. is making. That's the equal of any uh, moment in any animated film I can think of. As in terms of the best moments. And also you may have noticed that uh, the boy, Finn, his the t-shirt under his black polo is orange, indicating that Emmett has been his avatar the whole time. Also a little note, uh, the uh, wall display behind uh, the man upstairs uh, has a lot of the figures up, which is where he keeps his Lego guys. They're not playing, they're not part of the, uh, the team. In, in fact... That might suggest that he's the one keeping these figures. They don't actually belong to uh, um, Finn at all. Um, and that's what he does with them. He goes, right, Michelangelo the turtle, he goes up on this wall. Because he doesn't fit with the rest of the stuff, but he's a very expensive, very valuable figure. So he goes there. And that's obviously the, the place where they get captured and, uh, and stuck on the wall with the Green Lantern Superman bit. Uh, and, but also there's one moment when... Um, the man upstairs is, is thinking about his role in all this, and the goddamn Lego Death Star is right behind him, <laughs> and the Super Star Destroyer, and the one thing that he's obscuring that when he moves you can see blurry in the background is the Millennium Falcon. He's hiding and covering up the thing that made him courageous and creative to begin with, and he's uh, the allowing the overbearing Super Star Destroyer executor to determine uh, his direction. Anyway, it could all just be coincidental. We're not making room 347 here. But then, as you pointed out, you can't make an accidental scene of animation. Sorry, frame yeah. of animation. Yeah, because everything has to be examined to, to make sure that it's um, it's going to match the next bit. And they have put so much intent and subtlety into the background and fringes of the shots in this film to this point that it and this one live action scene is so pivotal to everything they're trying to do with the movie as a whole that it I would believe that there is this level of intent to the every, the things in the background of each one of these shots yeah also significantly Emmett lands when he goes back in through the portal which Finn makes by the way even decorates with candy and stars and things to make this special thing like he's he's really thought about this Emmett was going to journey out of the world that was his thing he lands at a crater much like Neo does at the end of Matrix Revolutions and he through his choice is able to actually change the world significantly because he's the only one who can reach out to um president business at this point basically it's, it's kind of like finn saying to himself look i can make whatever lego models and do whatever crazy things um that come to my mind but it's going to take me at this stage to actually talk to this guy 
So there's this wonderful relationship at the core of it. And they're encouraging the best of things as well. You can, it's, it's really difficult to walk away from this movie going, oh, I, I, I like I say, I, I, I pity and, and feel kind of a, an aching sadness for the people who were, were able to come away shaking their heads and, and feeling like they'd been robbed in some way or that, that someone had tried to pull the wool over their eyes or that, that they'd been ladling on the syrup. It's, um, there was applause in the cinema when I saw it originally. It was yeah, well. very really get that in the cinema, particularly in yeah. England. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jesus, we never applaud anything. I tried to applaud at the end of uh, Return of the King, and I was on my own. So <laughs> it was like, now nah, we ain't applauding that. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, too many endings. Good point. And then at the very, very end, the man upstairs decides to let the small child uh, play, which seems like a, a direct homage to Toy Story in that, uh, you know, suddenly this um, little tiny baby girl who's, you know, way too young for these toys is going to start getting her, uh, um, uh, getting in on the um, the action. And in this case, um, actually, it's the beginning of Toy Story 2 that Princess Drool turns up, but it's the puppy at the end of Toy Story 1, isn't it? Yeah. And they have that same kind of, uh uh-oh. We are from the planet Dupron. We are here to destroy you. Oh, man. Because, of course, as we already know, the Lego God is man. You may now enter an existential crisis. It's chilling, but that was also recorded by a very, very small... T- I think it's one either Lord or Miller's child recorded onto their iPhone. So there's, there's a real um, authenticity to that. It, it reminded me of South Park in the way that they get the, the little kids to sort of deliver those lines. Yeah. But that's, interestingly, a little too far. It's like the man upstairs has just sort of enjoyed this uh, this bit of bonding here, and now he's allowing this force of absolute chaos loose in the world, which is going to unbalance it further. Perfect sequel fodder. On the topic of the man upstairs daughter, could part of this be Finn's grab for attention? Obviously his sister is a lot younger than he is and has probably taken a lot of the attention away, so now Finn is reaching out to get more attention from his father. That stands to reason. And the most obvious way to grab somebody's attention who is such an avid collector like that is to go after the one thing he cares about. Everything is awesome because in the Lego movie it's like totally Lego and I just love 
Lego. That's not in dispute. Um, who was your favourite character? Um, my favourite character was Emmett and Benny. Okay, why? Because Benny was about this height. All of them are the same height. Except Mattelbeard. He was about this height. Okay. Um, but you can't like Benny just because he's the size of a standard Lego figure. There's got to be more about him that you like. Well, like like him because he goes... Really? Yes. That's all it takes. Okay, but let's go... Okay, you liked Emmett, though. Yeah. Because... He was understandable, and he was... He was amazing, and he was a good friend with Lucy. Yeah. And at the end, it was like... Batman was a bit careful for Lucy, and he said that Emmett... Lucy deserved Emmett, and... So Batman grew as well a little bit. Yeah. Stopped being quite so selfish. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I liked Benny too because he was very enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of kids respond well to that kind of <laughs> excited about stuff. I mean, that's uh, Emmett's enthusiastic as well. But then so is Unicky that you love her too. Yes. Um, what would you like to see happen in uh, a sequel, Lego Movie Two? Um, what I would like to see, what I would like to see. Is Emmett like to fifteen or to twenty-five? Like to be a little bit older and Lucy, and I'd like them to marry each other uh, and have have Lego babies. Yeah, yes, Lego babies, or just a Lego baby. You know, that's actually not the craziest thing in the world because they've got the little short legs they put on the Hobbit figures. They could have like a little Lego kid. And because Emmett is Finn, he's his avatar. And Unikitty to be um, a little bit bigger, a little bit older, like up to twenty-three. A big old twenty-three-year-old cat. <laughs> I'd like to see Lucy change a bit and actually stop pretending to be someone she's not. I mean, she's cool, uh, but she's trying huh? way too hard to be cool. Mm-hmm. I wonder who the real Lucy is. I think she kind of showed it a little bit when Emmett asked her. She told Emmett her real name was Lucy. That was the real Lucy. Yeah? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Lara. Welcome. Neural handshake. Complete. <laughs> Thank you, that was lovely. It, it doesn't cry out for a sequel, but I suppose it, it feels the most like Wreck-It Ralph in that there's a vast potential of what they could do with this premise later. And simply because both films um, made a decent chunk of cash, that they could there is a there is a possibility of more in the future. I think it's the fact that they so successfully create the world. Yeah, because they're working in. Uh, a medium that their audience is very familiar with a lot of the it's like going back to to writing about ancient myths and uh, archetypal figures there's so much familiarity to the audience that you only have to tell so much of the story which gives you much more time Mm. to expand on your ideas 
if you have to build up a brand new world from scratch you you have much less leeway in terms of what you then get to play with and what you then get to create which i think is possibly why um there's this huge thing at the moment for building on existing properties you know it's it's very difficult at the moment it would appear to get a, a film approved if it doesn't already have a book or a video game or a world behind it that they can say well the audience already knows all of that so we, we don't have to waste screen real estate setting the universe up yeah but it is amazing to consider that this Lego movie could have happened at any point since Lego began and since animation was around. I mean, frankly, Disney could have done this back in the 80s. Lego was big enough back then. And, I mean, you know, stop motion's been around for so long and there's been, there's been enough sort of stop motion, small scale Lego stuff, things that have happened that it could have actually been done actual stop motion style by someone like Aardman. The fact that this movie exists that it is actually very good that it is well executed that it actually has something to say that it isn't just the toy commercial that everyone kind of expected and some people still consider it to be mm. is astounding this i would not have expected it but this is one of my favorite movies period now not even just animated films not even just comedies or family films just this is just one of my favorite movies now <laughs> me too in fact, yeah, it's going to take Guardians of the Galaxy to beat this one to uh, favorite of the year. Oh, and possibly Hobbit. Oh, and Captain America: Winter Soldier. <laughs> it's a good year for movies. I got to say. Good year. Yeah. Okay, I think that'll do. I think uh, we've absolutely, completely, and utterly talked about everything in this movie for twice as long as it was ever on screen. This, I mean, you, you two guys aren't really around uh, for, for podcasting usually. This is what happens when we talk about something that we love, and it just goes on and on and on. And the the final edit ends up usually a lot more um, trim. But uh, yeah, thank Sorry. you very, very much for your stamina tonight. You guys have been excellent. No, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> And your insight. Just being here wasn't uh, wasn't enough. There was a, there was a lot of stuff coming out. So thank you very very much. I did actually just have a thought about Unikitty and her business kitty outfit. It's Clark Kent. Uh-huh. She puts on glasses <laughs> and she's Clark Kent. Nice. Oh, on on the uh, DC Heroes reference, animation supervisor Chris Mackay is a big fan of Catwoman, has a Catwoman tattoo. When his name turns up in the end credits, which are all stop motion, um, there's a little Catwoman head mask in there. I think I read the end credits took a year to do. (laughs) Yeah, okay, so yeah, that, that would mean that to actually do this movie in stop motion they wouldn't have the control they wouldn't be able to do things like the flowing uh, liquidious uh, lego pieces the, the water and the smoke and things yeah, like that you need to actually simulation to pull that yeah yeah to actually do what they imagine this movie live action would be if mm. not impossible incredibly expensive and take forever to do so somehow the best of all worlds happened in that it looks like it was stop motion. It has that wonderful organic sort of like handmade feel to it. And yet it was done so cleverly on computers that the people doing the actual animation wouldn't really get that kind of recognition. The video games are going to have to massively raise their game now. Yeah. I haven't played the Lego movie video game, but I'm going to go ahead and guess it's pretty much the same as all the rest of them. Yeah. I have heard it's pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah. 
but just, just Which isn't bad. I've just played it five or six times now. Alright. I'd, I'd probably still like to play it just because of the sheer character of this world. You know, if I was going to collect Lego sets, probably, I, I, you know, if I became super rich overnight, then this wouldn't be a bad line to get hold of. You should be fortunate you don't live near a Lego store. It's very expensive. Gee. <laughs> well, if anyone feeling super wealthy, so, <laughs> sorry, anyone's feeling super generous wants to send me the sea cow, I would be very happy with that. Thank you guys all very, very much. And, uh, you join us all, folks, next week for, uh, our 30th Digital Drift, which happens to be my 400th podcast episode ever, and I am feeling every single one of those. Um, it's the Iron Giant. Daniel Floyd is back, along with Sharon Shaw, and Joshua Garrity, and Name Chai Bitty. Every man for himself. No! We must protect the peace! Jack, do you know what time it is? It's game time. Y'all ready for this? Oh no! They were ready for that! And I guess there's probably only one way we could actually probably finish this one. I, I, yeah. Just there's yeah. that song that they occasionally play. You've been listening to Digital Drift. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural, Neural Handshake, handshake complete. complete. Oh, we never mentioned the redemption of Bad Cop. When he draws the little good, good cop face on himself. That's lovely. Okay, we mentioned it now. Goodbye. <laughs>